you know what? Let's just get the pressure off of doing it. You know it's in the bag now, whether it's in this game or the first series of next week's uh, ball game. But there you go. And there it is, a nine-yard strike right over the middle to Darren Sproles. Move over, Marino. There's a breeze coming through the door. Drew Brees has just broken Dan Marino's single-season passing yardage record that was set way back in 1984, and the fans rise as one as you can hear the chant of Drew, Drew, Drew as he passes Dan Marino. All right, we're back. It was uh, it was nice to be off for a few weeks, but I have to admit that at some point, maybe right after Christmas, I kind of missed the show, and I wanted to get on Twitter and bother someone to come on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just like a part of me was was off there for a minute. But we are back. It is season two, episode one of the Sportscasters. We should reintroduce ourselves. My name is Steve Bennett. I'm Don Russ. And we are the hosts of this little podcast, which we record in Buffalo, New York. Today's date is January 3rd, 2012. We're actually recording and releasing this on a Wednesday. In most cases, we're going to record it on a Tuesday, release it on a Tuesday. But sometimes we have to make some accommodations for our guests, and that's the case today. We have a great show lined up for everyone in the season premiere of the Sportscasters. We have Tom Verducci. Don, they said it couldn't be done. (laughs) <laughs> they did. Many people had told us that Tom Verducci is a guy who doesn't do much in the way of press. He's not on Twitter. He admits himself that he's not much of a promoter. And he often turns down Mike Francesa. But after much begging and emailing and name dropping, Tom Verducci is finally going to join us today. Also, Lee Jenkins, who we never have to beg to be on the show, is going to join us, be a part of the season premiere. You know, in the season finale, Richard Deitch said that we're in the can for Lee Jenkins. So I <laughs> yeah. thought we should definitely have him on the season premiere. Also, we're going to make a first-time connection with Jeff Merrick, who now is the co-host of the Puck Daddy Radio podcast. It's called Merrick versus Wyshynski this year. Jeff Merrick's going to join us to talk a little hockey. And also, kind of a last-minute decision, but Michael Fabiano is going to join us today to talk about fantasy football, close out the season with us, and talk a little bit about the playoff fantasy game that you can play on the NFL.com website, which we both really like. Yep. Uh, Also, today we're going to do some reoccurring segments that Don and I often do on the show. One of them is Three Things, where we go over the three biggest uh, sports stories that are on our minds. Uh, We also have a book club here that we are pretty proud of. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. We're going to do a segment called the Sportscasters Top 10, where Don and I are going to do a list of our top 10 sports predictions for 2012. Also, we're going to do Five on Fantasy for one last time before we shelve that for a bit. And in Five on Fantasy, we do some fantasy football, baseball, hockey stuff, whatever's on our mind, even basketball, if we're so inclined. And we're going to end the show with pick, with pick four. I know it's a segment Don doesn't love, but <laughs> we've got clean slates and nice records to get us started, so we're going to do that at the end. But let's get it all started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. 
to the oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. All right, I'll start it uh, in our new season here. Two people, I think, are getting overshadowed, maybe rightfully so, uh, by the impressive seasons that Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers had. But I wanted to point them out. Uh, two really underrated seasons. One, Maurice Jones-Drew, number one rusher, 1,600 yards. That's all with no quarterback, no offense, uh, no real even offensive threats on that Ten team. Ten men boxes he faced. He, he must have, all, all game long. Who else would you cover on that team? Uh, and he won the rushing title. Didn't score a lot of touchdowns for you fantasy players out there, but still quite an amazing accomplishment as far as uh, Maurice Jones-Drew is concerned. And the second one, and he is getting a lot of press, but maybe he deserves even more, is Cam Newton. Uh, I know both of us were kind of doubters at the beginning of the season. Yeah, he proved us wrong. He ended the year with 4,000-plus yards, 700 rushing yards, 14 TDs on the ground, which uh, finished second only behind LaShawn McCoy. And he increased his team's win total by four. And that's all with no offseason. Right. Maybe the most impressive rookie season Ever, I, I you know I don't disagree with that at all. I, I think he did have the best rookie season ever. I think the ones that come up are Herschel Walker and Randy Moss. I didn't see Herschel Walker's. I did see Randy Moss's. It was very impressive. But he also had Chris Carter on the other side. Right. You know he's a wide receiver. He was basically, you know, he didn't draw a double team until week eight. You know what I mean? He right, had a, a right. almost Hall of Fame quality wide receiver opposite him. You know, Cam Newton went to a team who was the worst in the league last year. They spent a lot of money in the offseason, but they only spent it on their own crappy players who were part of the <laughs> right. really bad season the year before. So what he did to come in there, rush for 14 touchdowns, throw for 4,000 yards, it's hard to be a rookie in the National Football League, play the position of quarterback. He did it better than ever, anyone I've ever seen, including Matt yeah, Ryan. Super, super impressive. Really great. And as for Maurice Jones-Drew, you know, he's maybe the most underrated player in the National Football League. The He's in a terrible market. Uh, the team is very irrelevant. You don't get to see them much. They did play a lot of night games for whatever reason this year. <laughs> right. They were on a Thursday night game. They yep. were on a, a couple Monday night games. They even beat Baltimore in a Monday night game. Right, right. But he, like you said, every week, anytime that team played anyone, the game plan was to stop him, and somehow he still rushed for 1,600 yards. So really, you're right. Those are two just unbelievable seasons. And I don't know Maurice Jones-Drew personally or anything like that, but everything I've seen about him, he seems like a real classy guy, good teammate, and like you said, on that terrible team for so long, good for him. And he's great on TV. I mean, the stuff he does with the NFL Network. and Yeah, fantasy football-related yeah, stuff. Yeah, he's, he's great. All right, my first thing was Monday, you know, with kind of how the holiday worked out this year. Monday was a holiday for everyone. Yep. And it was really nice because the NHL – had their annual Winter Classic on Monday. And it was awesome to be able to kind of sleep in a little bit, wake up, do some things around the house, like putting away some of the Christmas gifts, and then just being able to relax on the couch. It was cold outside. And just being able to relax on the couch and and watch the Winter Classic. I thought it was a great day for the NHL. It was a great game highlighted by a penalty shot for the Flyers in the last 20 seconds of regulation with a chance to tie it. Danny Breer versus Henry Lundqvist, two of the stars in the league. And Lundqvist came up to the challenge, stopped Breer. Breer, who we've watched in Buffalo in the shootout for many years, really good at it, 
decided not to deke, probably because of the ice quality at the right. end of the game on the outdoor rink. Instead, went for the five-hole, got stopped. Uh, Mike Rupp for the Rangers had two goals. And Brad Richards, who everyone wanted to sign in the offseason, ended up getting the game-winning goal. It was a great game. It's a great day for the NHL. It's always great when Bob Costas is part of an NHL broadcast. Yep. He headed up the coverage for NBC. Some of the pictures that I've seen online are just beautiful. It's a great day. They got 47,000 people in there. They also, this is the first year they did an alumni game. They got 45,000 people in there for that. Bernie Perrant played goal. He's over age 60. Played four <laughs> yeah. minutes. Stopped a breakaway. Eric Lindros played. Legion which of Doom. Really yeah. Cool. yeah. So it's a really great weekend for the NHL. Another great thing for the NHL is the launch of the NBC Sports Network, which happened after the Winter Classic. They actually launched it, I don't know if you've seen this, Don, with a documentary about the 1972 Summit Series between uh, Canada and Russia. It's a fantastically done documentary. Really great information. I got to see Gilbert Perot score a goal. He hmm. played on that 72 Canada team. Some of the games, they had 35 players on the team, and each player was guaranteed at least one game. So Perot played some of it. And uh, Phil Esposito was the assistant captain of the Canadian team, was great in it. He's a really funny guy. So it's a great weekend for the NHL. We're always all for that here on the Sportscaster. And it's nice that it worked out, too, because there was a lot of danger of that game not even getting played because of how warm it had been The sun was going to be an issue it. with the glare, so they, put, they did push it back a couple hours. Right. But that worked out. It was better for me that it was at three. Yeah. Uh, my second thing this week, also football-related, kind of piggybacking on Cam Newton, is just how good this rookie class was. Uh, particularly the top end of the draft, there were names like Cam Newton, A.J. Green, Patrick Peterson, Von Miller, uh, Julio Jones, and Alden Smith were all drafted, I believe, top 10 or right near there. I left out Marcel Darius. Not that he had a bad year, but I mean, he, he was pretty good, too. He was pretty good. Yep. I mean, there were no, almost... Defensive tackle is a tough position to play as a rookie. There, there are almost no misses at the top half of that draft, and not only were there not many misses, a lot of those guys were highly, highly impactful players. Uh, and then deeper into the draft, you got guys like DeMarco Murray, Andy Dalton, who had a great rookie year, Torrey Smith, and Denarius Moore has shown flashes of being really good. So really, really impress impressive rookie class. Again, with what I said earlier, none of these guys had a, a true offseason to work with. So uh, hats are off to the rookies. You know, one guy that I think we're going to wonder about, and I don't want to call him a bust yet because it's not fair, but... Boy, Blaine Gabbert doesn't look very good, does no, he? No, he doesn't. Especially the way, you know, Jake Locker in limited action looked pretty good. Christian Ponder's had some moments. Right. Uh, obviously, we talked about Cam Newton and how great he's been. And Dalton as well, making the playoffs. And TJ Yates. TJ Yates. Yep. All these guys were picked after Gabbert, who was the 10th pick, and he just does not look good. No, and I mean, and part of that might just be he doesn't have many weapons. I mean, he has the protection of the running game, but he, he, he doesn't. And you don't have any wide receivers. No, and but I mean, like you said, they had a few night games this year, and those night guys are usually very—they're not very critical a lot of times, especially ESPN. And they—they they killed him. They did. They after every play, it's like, when is he going to throw it more than seven yards? When is it? I mean, they beat him up. So hopefully, uh, with a little bit of change there, he can—he can get some weapons around him. My number two thing is another hockey story. Last year at this time when we were starting the podcast, the World Junior Championships was in Buffalo, New York. It's kind of a backdrop. Uh, one of our guests on one of our first couple shows was Jack Campbell, the goaltender for the United States yeah. last year and this year. This year the tournament was in Calgary, Alberta, and it did not go well for the United States. No. Uh, the United States won their first game pretty easily against Denmark and then run into really hot goalies 
in the next two games, losing to Finland and the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic goaltender was especially good. He had over 50 saves in the game. And the United States team was actually eliminated before they got to play Canada yeah. in their fourth game of the round robin. Their sense of regulate, regu- oh, Jesus, I'm going to screw this up. Uh, relegation. Thank you. Oh. They have been sent to relegation where they've been beaten up on Latvia and teams of that nature. But no medal this year for the U.S. Definitely a disappointment. I think the biggest mistake they made was they decided not to play Jack Campbell in the second game. Instead, they played the backup goaltender, his last, uh, John Gibson, I believe his name is. I know his last name is Gibson. I think it's John. Uh, and he was not good. Cost the team the game. And then by the time Campbell got back into the net in the third game, the team was facing the pressure of potentially being eliminated. And the Czech Republic goalie, who was is an NHL draft pick, just stole the show. Another thing... Last night, Canada played Russia in, well, two things about yesterday's action. First game, Finland versus Sweden, one of the great hockey rivalries of those two countries, playing each other in the semifinals. Sweden hadn't been in, hasn't won the World Junior Championships since 1981, where they won it in West Germany, not even a country anymore. <laughs> Finland took a 2 nothing lead into the third period, said they were going to play the trap, try to hang on and win, gave up a goal about midway through, then gave up a goal in the last 40 seconds. Um, and then lost in a shootout. Now, their captain, one of the best shootout players in the world, videos of him online making sick moves. Mm-hmm. He went last, needed a score to tie it for Finland, and he tried to backhand toe drag it and miffed it. Uh-huh. Never even uh-huh. got a shot off. So Sweden advanced to the championship. You figure, all right, Canada's playing at home. They lost to Russia last year in the championship. They're not going to make that mistake of underestimating them again. What do you know? I blink. It's six to one Russia <laughs> going into the third period. Did you see the final score? I did not. Six know. to five. Wow. Canada scored four goals in four minutes and thirty six seconds in the third period. Almost the exact opposite. They had four year. and a half minutes to get the tying goal. The Russian coach made the ballsiest of balls de- decisions, pulling his goalie with four minutes left in the game, putting a, a totally cold goalie in, having to not having to be perfect. Right. Otherwise, Canada ties that game and maybe wins it in overtime of the shootout. Russia barely escaped. Canadians hit a goalpost in a final flurry. <laughs> it was an unbelievable game. This is an unbelievable tournament. Canada's out of the world uh, championship final for the first time in 11 years. Sweden has a chance to win it for the first time since 1981. And Russia has, to cha- has a chance to repeat. Back to back, yeah. And the tournament is in Russia next week. So they might be even looking at a three-peat. So it's been a great tournament. It always is. It's very exciting hockey. The NHL Network does a great job in showing it to the fans in the United States. And Calgary and Edmonton have had record crowds this week for the tournament. So just a really exciting thing. I love the World Junior Championships, and uh, we'll talk more about it with Jeff Merrick later. And Sabres uh, prospect Joel Armia. 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 He played for Finland. Yeah, he he looked pretty good and scored a goal. Scored a goal and scored in the shootout. My third thing this week, uh, Matt Flynn has done what Kevin Cobb did last year. Uh, Matt, Castle. Matt Castle to some degree, although Castle had like 15 games. Rob to do Johnson. It. Rob Johnson, yeah. Uh, he's going to earn himself a huge payday and a starting job somewhere with his performance that really is as good as any quarterback has had ever. Uh, in a meaningless game for the Packers, so a lot of the starters weren't even playing alongside him, he completed 70% of his passes for 480 yards and six TDs. He also had one pick and a fumble. 
But wow, either way, uh, his own, winning drive. Yeah, his only other start in his career was in 2010, in a loss in New England, uh, where he completed about 65% of his passes for 253 TDs and one pick. So this guy appears to, in two limited starts or two starts, uh, appears to be the real deal. Uh, he's a big guy, kind of. He's 6'2", 225, so he has decent size for a quarterback. He's only 26 years old. I imagine somebody's going to give him a boatload of money. And if I'm a team, I probably see more in him than I do in Matt Castle, who was they gave away the world to get him. Right. So somebody's going to have to pay up to get Matt Flynn next year. I'm now, thinking. here's the interesting thing, though. With all the quarterbacks who've come in the league last year, if Landry Jones comes out, Landry Jones, Robert Griffin III, and Andrew Luck should all be top 10 picks. Right. We talked about all the rookie quarterbacks that were in the league last year. Who's left to pick a quarterback? Right. Oakland, maybe, although they just gave up a ton for, for Carson, Carson Palmer. Palmer. Maybe Miami. Washington, maybe Miami. Uh, Cleveland, you would think, is going to do everything they can to get Griffin. Indianapolis is going to pick Luck, you would think. Right. Maybe the Bills, although they just paid a lot of money to Fitzpatrick, although they can get out of that after another year. Yeah, that's I don't a, know. It's a tough call. I mean, it's not a good time. It's a good time for NFL quarterbacks. Like you, I think you called it in the last podcast, the golden age of quarterbacks. Yeah, I mean, maybe Kansas City. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's a tough spot for him, but he he he's going to make it. Uh, Someone some other owners make a hard decision. Someone's going to do it. Right. Uh, my third thing is also NFL related. Uh, Monday was what they call Black Monday, and it wasn't as bad as it usually is. There was a couple coaches fired, uh, but the big stories were coaches coming back. San Diego made the decision to keep Norv Turner. I was shocked about that. Yeah, that's unbelievable. We're going to talk about that with Lee Jenkins later. A big surprise there. Um, Andy Reid is going to get another year. Uh, the Cowboys didn't make a change. Um, just a lot of uh, coaches made it. Um, what team fired their GM? Um, but not the coach. Someone did that. Was it Jacksonville? No, no, no. They, they, they made a change in the middle of the year. Someone fired a GM. For some reason, it's escaping me. I'll think of it in a second. But another thing from the weekend I wanted to talk to you about, Don, was Stevie Johnson got a 15-yard penalty, his second one in a month, yep. for excessive celebration after a touchdown. He had Happy New Year written on his shirt. And he ended up being benched by his coach, Shangali, the rest of the game. What did you think of it? The benching? Just uh, the whole thing in general. Because he's taking a lot of heat here in Buffalo. You know what? Uh, he's kind of developing a reputation as a me-first player a little bit. And I don't know that it's necessarily that or it's that he just makes bad decisions. Either way, it doesn't, doesn't look good on his part. I like him. Um, I think he's a great route runner. I think he's got a do something about the drops maybe but i mean he he made Revis look bad in a game but then again he was overshadowed by that Taking game was, the plexical burst shoot right and, and then going to the, the ground. ground right so i mean if he can clean his keep his act together and clean up a little bit uh i think he's a he's a valuable player for the bills he's a good team player everyone has nothing but nice things to say about him as a teammate but he just puts himself on a pedestal, it seems like, on intentionally or not. But And he hurt his team. I mean, he probably lost the Jets game. Yeah. 
And so everyone could stop screaming at the radio. Is Jerry Angelo for the Bears as the fire GM? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, but you know, I, I feel a little bit bad for Stevie in the sense that, you know, Pierre Thomas, who is a, you know, he has a Super Bowl ring, so maybe he's got a little bit more leeway. But he had a similar penalty after Christmas where he put a bow on the ball, handed it to a fan, got a 15-yard penalty. I thought what Stevie did last weekend was a little bit harmless. Certainly didn't hurt oh, anyone. I, I, mean, I agree too. I mean, if you want to talk about what, if it's a good or bad rule, I don't think he should have been penalized. I don't know what he just rule said he Happy broke New Year, exactly. right? I mean, I know what rule Pierre Thomas broke. He used the ball as a prop. Right. You know, I don't know what specific rule. I guess just taking it too far or it being viewed as taunting or whatever. But I kind of felt bad for him. But the interesting thing about he's a dumb guy. Though. Like, yeah, he does come across that way. the The thing about the the Jets game that bothers me is. The thing done in poor taste was pretending to shoot yourself in the leg like this other guy that just spent time in jail for doing the same thing. If you want to call taunting on that, that's fine. They didn't throw a flag and no, say he until fell he down. Ground, right? That's the dumbest rule mm-hmm. in the NFL is if you, celeb- if you go to the ground in a celebration. So, I mean, if, if you want to talk about dumb rules in the NFL, we could be here all be, day. Right. Right. And we did do that a little bit in the season finale with Mike Pereira. Right. All right. That is it for three things. Um, I do want to mention, in case you're new to the podcast, where you can find us a little bit. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. We're going to do some more blogging as we get into the second season of the show here. And our blog is the sportscasters.blogspot.com. Feel free to email us anytime, the sportscasters at gmail.com. And our website is sports-casters.com and also i've been doing some blogging on proplayerinsiders.com and they're going to set up a sportscasters page for us over there so if you could check that out that that site's actually owned and operated by the nflpa that's awesome yeah so we're gonna have a pa- our own page over there which is pretty cool so uh let's get started we have a lot to do we have tom verducci lee jenkins michael fabiano and jeff merrick we're gonna take a break and come right back with tom verducci <laughs> Our next guest is from East Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Penn State, where he earned a BA in journalism. He spent 10 years serving as a sports writer for Newsday. For three of those years, he was Newsday's national baseball columnist. In 1993, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer and one of the magazine's top baseball writers. In 2006, Sports Illustrated published a book full of his best columns called Inside Baseball. In 2009, he co-authored a book with Joe Torre called The Yankee Years. Today, he lives in suburban New Jersey and has also began a career in television. During the baseball playoffs, he is a field reporter for TBS, and he often appears on various programs on the Major League Baseball Network, where he serves as a baseball insider. A very warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Tom Verducci. How are you doing today, Mr. Verducci? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. It's definitely uh, something we look forward to for a long time. I think uh, last uh, August we had Peter King, and he was really close to the top of the list when we started this, and you were right there with him. So we're really excited to have you, and I just want to thank you for doing this. Um, we're at an interesting time. I mean, we're still about almost two months away from pitchers and catchers reporting, but we're getting towards the end of 
the hot stove season where all of the teams in Major League Baseball have made changes to their roster, signed free agents, lost free agents. And I guess I'm wondering, at this point in the winter, are you able to declare any winners and losers since the World Series ended? Uh, you know, I think you can only give out partial grades at this point because there's still some darn good players uh, that are still out there available by by uh, free agent signings, and maybe there's some trades around the corners. So those those seem to die down about now. So um, it's tough to say. Uh, I think obviously we always look for teams that spend the most money, and the Los Angeles Angels have to really jump out. Um, but I still think with guys like Ryan Madsen and Prince Fielder to decide where they're going to play. You have to say uh, it's incomplete right now in terms of winners and losers. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Prince Fielder. Obviously, he's probably the biggest name out there. Do you have any indication as to where he's le- leaning or maybe just some of the teams that are in the running that could actually sign a Prince Fielder? Because, I mean, without knowing anything, we can eliminate you know 20 of the teams who are just never going to sign a guy like that. Yeah, you know what? I've thought all along, and this is going back to last year, that he was going to wind up with the Washington Nationals. I just think the Nationals took a lot of heat for the money they gave Jason Worth because I think we all understand, and even the Nationals, he's not a franchise player. He's a very good complimentary type of player. And I really thought if people looked at it as a one-time move, it didn't make sense. But if you looked at it as the beginning of other moves, it does begin to make more sense. In other words, part of the plan is to get an impact player like Fielder, and now you slide Worth into a complementary role, where that's hitting, you know, closer in the order to where he was in Philadelphia, fifth or sixth, then it begins to make more sense. And I think then you have a team that can start to challenge for the National League East or at least a wild card position. Um, so I still think that's where it ends up. If the Nationals are successful in redoing their television deal with MASN, uh, that will have a lot to do with how much the money they can give Fielder because uh, there are no discounts with Prince Fielder. There are no short-term deals. It's going to be for many years for near record-breaking money. Um, so it's nothing. Don't assume that since this late winter that the price has gone down. But to me, the Nationals have sort of been a stealth team in all this. And uh, obviously, his agent Scott Boris has got a great relationship with the learners who own the team. Uh, I'd say right now that they're the favorites. I'm not saying it's a done deal by any means, but I think that's the one to me that makes the most sense. Let's talk about the Nationals for a second just because you brought them up. I I think they're a really interesting team in that they have two of the most certainly polarizing prospects out there in Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg. And and Steven Strasburg is a guy who a couple years ago burst onto the scene and, and you know, he had that unfortunate injury. Where is Steven Strasburg in his development? And is he a guy that will be a regular starter in their rotation this year? Or is he someone who's going to still have to rebuild his career in the minors? Well, he will be a regular starter with one caveat, and that is he will have an innings limit placed on him this year. They're not just going to send him out there 32 times and let him pitch 200 innings. Probably settle somewhere in the 165 to 180 innings range. Uh, so that's something that's going to be have to have to be monitored over the course of the season. But other than that, physically he's good to go. We saw him come back at the end of last season, so there's no question about his health. I actually think the skill set he brings to the mound as a starting pitcher is matched by only one other pitcher in baseball today, and that's Justin Verlander. You just don't find pitcher starting pitchers who can throw 100 miles an hour from the first inning to the ninth inning and have a breaking ball to go with it and with command. So 
The only issue with Strasburg long-term is staying healthy. There's been some questions about whether his mechanics will allow him to do that. Uh, but in terms of stuff, competitiveness, he's a legit top-of-the-rotation type of starter. So when you look at the Nationals, when you have Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper in your system, I think you've got two of probably the top five or at least the top ten drawing cards in all of baseball. And, you know, I know that's hard to say about people who don't have a long track record in the major leagues for Harper, none at all. But there's certainly an awareness about these people, and they're both players that have power, power on the mound and power at the plate, and that's what sells. So I think there's – the Nationals, to me, are going to be, win or lose, one of the most exciting teams in baseball in 2012. Bryce Harper is a guy, just to talk about him for a second, that I, I know the one maybe – thing that scared some teams was his maturity. How has he developed growing up in the minor leagues, and is he someone who's ready to be a major league baseball player? Go back to when Junior Griffey went to the Mariners camp and was 19 years old, and they had no plans of taking him. Or you can go back to Dwight Gooden in the Mets camp in 1984, and Frank Cash and the general manager didn't want to take him. But players that have special ability, they set their own timetables. And Harper may be one of those players where the Nationals do want to send him to AAA, take some pressure off him, let him grow into becoming a major leaguer some more. But he's got an opportunity to change their minds in spring training. He's going to get a lot of playing time, similar to what Jason Hayward had with Atlanta a couple of years ago. Not out of the realm of possibility, he could start the season with Washington. I think the immaturity issues have been overrated a little bit. I think the things about Bryce Harper that people don't like um, stem from being ultra-competitive, body language on the field type of stuff that rubs opponents the wrong way. And teammates who play with him like him understand that uh, this guy's got some Pete Rose in him. And let's face it, Pete Rose was the type of guy that ticked off guys on the other side of the field as well. But uh, in terms of the way he carries himself, I think, as a professional on and off the field. I don't think there's immaturity issues there. I do think the body language and the fact that he is a target already, everybody knows who he is at age 19, uh, makes him uh, a guy who's going to be a target not just from the media, but from players who don't know, players on the other side of the field. And I think over time that will diminish. You mentioned when discussing the possibility of the Nationals signing Prince Fielder that they were going to have to, you know, rework a deal with their regional sports network. And it seems like that's a theme that has been really prevalent this year. Uh, the Angels obviously had a lot of money to spend because of their deal with their regional sports network. And uh, the Yankees have had yes for quite a few years. And the Mets with SNY. And I can think of some others. W what is it about the way that teams can raise money from these regional sports networks that has changed in the last few years that this has become such a big issue with the teams having the money that they need to sign these big free agents? Yeah, I actually think it's the number one issue in terms of what determines competitive balance in baseball these days. And that is a recent uh, development, I'd say, in the last four or five years. Uh, I know the Yankees and to a certain degree the Red Sox were ahead of the curve with their RSNs, but uh, what's happened is the money in sports programming has just exploded in the last four or five years as people have more entertainment options and, and multiple media platforms to get their entertainment. Sports has become more valuable because it's the one type of programming that people don't time shift. People will sit and watch it in real time, live time, and mainstream media. 
Uh, and that has tremendous value to advertisers because people aren't able to zip through the commercials. So I think as the world has gotten faster and people have watched, uh, they've consumed their media on their own terms, sports has stood out as something that you have to watch on sports' terms for the most part. Very few people are going to TiVo a baseball game and then watch it uh, and zip through commercials. It just is something that people want to see in real time as it unfolds. So given that, it's become more valuable um, as content, and the teams that control the content and own the provider, like the Yankees and, and to a certain percentage of Red Sox, have a tremendous advantage. The next best thing to do is to get one of these RSNs to be very desperate to continue to control that content. That's exactly what happened in Texas with the Rangers. This is a team that went from bankruptcy two years ago to now having a TV deal that's going to pay them starting in 2014 or 15 between 60 and $80 million a year. And we know that the landscape has totally changed with the Angels, where their yearly take is going to triple from about $50 million to almost $150 million. And keep your eye on the Los Angeles Dodgers, because other than the Nationals, that you know the Dodgers are going to be the team this, this about this time next year we'll be talking about making huge investments in players based entirely on new changes, a new deal with their regional sports network. And they also could be getting $150 million or more per year. Uh, and that's up from about $40 million. So the landscape is really changing. The, I know the basic agreement has worked under this presumption that competitive balance now is in check and they, they do everything they can to try to keep it that way. Uh, but the changes in the media landscape, I think, have outpaced whatever changes the CBA has. Yeah, it's it's incredible to see uh, these regional sports networks. And like you said, with the being TiVo-proof or DVR-proof, it's just incredible the money that's being spent on sports programming right now. You mentioned the Dodgers, and they and the Mets had a long season last year trying to sort out ownership changes and money issues with the divorce on the Dodgers side and the Mets maybe being a victim of uh, the big Ponzi scheme or we're not I'm not really sure about that but are, are the Mets and the Dodgers at a are they getting any closer to resolving those issues and getting back on track well the Dodgers are a lot closer to getting back on track and I think they will become a very big player in the short term here um, you know, by virtue of the agreement Frank McCourt, the owner of the team, has with Major League Baseball, this team has to be sold by the end of April. Uh, he needed the proceeds of the sale of the team to finalize his divorce. Uh, that seems to be something that really uh, is not negotiable, that that is a real deadline. So the Dodgers will have a new owner in short term, and I think they're walking into a great situation. It's really buying the stock at a very low point. And to me, it is analogous to the Rangers situation, where the Rangers came out of bankruptcy court to become a really powerful player in Major League Baseball with tremendous revenues now and uh, a payroll that seems to be growing every single year. I think the Dodgers will be in that same boat. I mean, they, they took a gigantic hit last year. There's no question about that. They lost more fans than any team in baseball. They have the worst television ratings of any team in baseball. Uh, there's no doubt that the brand itself had suffered some damage last year, but I think by changing owners and changing what the narrative is of the L.A. Dodgers, and certainly I think the, more specifically the payroll and the roster are going to change, I think the Dodgers are going to become a very big player in the National League West in a very short period of time. 
The Miami Mar- Marlins are a team that have had a really interesting winter. They've changed their name. They've changed their uniforms with these really crazy colors. And they have a brand new, beautiful stadium. They've spent a ton of money on players like Jose Reyes, Heath Bell, Mark Burley. Uh, what do you think of uh, the Marlins' changes? Do you think that they're a team that you know, has spent a lot of money, but the players aren't necessarily going to gel together and they could be winners of the offseason but losers in the season? Or do you think they're a team that has spent their money wisely and with the momentum of the new ballpark can really contend in the National League? Well, I should start by saying that I like what they're trying to do here, and that is to capitalize on really a once-in-a-generation opportunity. They have finally a baseball-only stadium in South Florida. Now is the time where they have to put an attractive team in there to try to get a fan base established because they never have established a true fan base in South Florida. They did turn out for their world championship seasons, especially towards the end. But traditionally, there's not a big season ticket base at all in Miami for the Marlins. Uh, they have to strike now to get people on board and, and dovetail with the excitement of the new ballpark. People will come out to see the ballpark. There's no question about that. And if you put a good team out there, they may come back more than just to check out the ballpark and for years to come. And that's the idea, and I certainly understand that. On the other hand, I think they're playing in a very difficult division, and I'm not sure that they now can contend for a division title. And I wonder if this honeymoon effect that they do have is going to be more short-lived there than in some other places. Um, you know, Again, you're not dealing with an established fan base. Many of the fans in South Florida are fans of, say, the Mets or the Yankees or the Red Sox or teams from the Northeast where they originally came from and they've established and kept those loyalties. I think it's a very difficult proposition for the Marlins to get the people interested in the Marlins, not just baseball, but to buy season tickets to the Marlins. Um, I'm not saying it can't be done, and I like the way they're going about it, but it's a big mountain to climb, and I think they have to strike right now. Uh, and I've got questions whether where that ballpark is situated, some of the problems that are inherent in getting, just physically getting to that ballpark, the parking garages, the bridges, the traffic. I don't know if long-term this is going to work out in South Florida. The history of pro sports in Florida in general is not that great. Um, so I have my doubts long-term, but I do have to applaud the Marlins for the effort that they're making. Uh, you know, I know the uniforms have turned some people the wrong way, but... Again, it, it kind of fits in the mo- in the mode here the Marlins are in, which is take big risks and try to hit a home run. I don't know why, but I really like the idea that they're the Miami Marlins instead of the Florida Marlins. I know that's such a small thing, but I, if I was a resident of Miami, I, I think it would just draw me into the team a little bit more. It's giving them a little bit more ownership of the team. Just that subtle thing maybe will make a difference for some fans, or do you think I'm overrating that? No, I think so. I think if the team is specifically associated with the city, and let's face it, it's a great city and it's a huge metropolis that um, you know does have an identity all of its own, uh, that this team will be thought of as uh, an urban type of team. That ballpark is in the city proper. Uh, I think it fits that they are the Miami Marlins. I mean, uh, whether that allows them to draw more fans, I don't know, but I think it certainly helps the brand identity and the value of it. You know, you mentioned the new stadium, and it's been a, a while now since PNC Park opened, but I, I can't think of a more beautiful place to spend a Sunday afternoon in the United States to be able to sit maybe behind the catcher in PNC Park and look out at the beautiful bridges and the city skyline and, and Pittsburgh. And, and the the Pirates were a big story up until about 
July or August last year. They really hung in there before they fell apart. How close are the Pirates to competing, not just till July, but for the whole season, and maybe someday playing a playoff game in that beautiful stadium? You know, that's a really good question, because I did think that, you know, even finishing with 90 losses last year, I, I think they they moved the brand forward a little bit. There was excitement there in the middle of the season, and let's face it, you do have to get to 81, 82 wins before you can start talking about being competitive, and and they haven't been able to scale that mountain for a generation. But uh, I like some of the things that Clint Hurdle brought to this organization. I thought there was accountability. I thought there was effort. Um, There certainly was energy there. Uh, They do have some exciting players. I still think they're short talent-wise to, to compete on the short-term basis. But I look at some of their drafts in the last, especially, two years where they've outspent just about everybody in baseball, uh, and especially their drafting of some high-end young pitching. To me, that's what's going to tell the story. And I think you have to wait a good four or five years to see the payoff with those type of young draft picks. So I would say the window for the for the Pirates is to continue to progress in the next couple of years and be in a position where this young pitching hopefully does develop for Pittsburgh where they can start to contend. Uh, and again, I think the timeline now is probably four or five years from now. And I'm talking about a legitimate contender. Maybe they can get to 81, 82 wins in the next couple of years as a stepping stone in between. But um, you know, I do like the direction, certainly with the amount of money that they have invested in the draft and player development. And I, I think that will show up. You know, it sounds like you're saying that the Pirates and the Pirates fans really need to be patient. And I think that last year they resisted the temptation of uh, dumping some of those minor league players for to try to make a push at the at the deadline. They kind of resisted that. They didn't they didn't sell any parts off. If if they're a team that you know is is in that position again, do you think they can be patient enough to to keep the the stockpile of prospects and and keep moving forward and and really wait this out? Do you think they have the resolve there, or do you think that since the drought's been so long that if they get to a point where they're in another July fifteenth and they're four games out with you know a chance to contend that they might you know not do what they did last year and sell some parts off? Well, I think the worst place to be if you're a baseball club is to drive in the middle of the road. And by that I mean you have to know what you are, and you're either building or you're going for it. And I think if you're not sure where you are and you're waiting for certain things to magically piece together to get yourself in the upper group, uh, it's a big mistake, and you're going to make some mistakes. And I know a lot of us in the media, especially fans, look at payroll as a sign of commitment. But a lot of times it's mistakes for teams to start spending money when they're not ready to win. And you can go back to Pittsburgh years when they made some major investments in people like Derek Bell and Pat Mears, and, you know, those were mistakes. So just spending money for the sake of adding mid-level veterans and you can sell to your fans, hey, we're improving our payroll, sometimes that does more harm than good. And uh, I don't think the Pirates at this point should have to apologize for their payroll you know, typically in the 50s or near $60 million. When they're ready to win, that's when you start adding. But I, I don't see it. The Pirates right now have that core where you just begin to you know, add, drop in a couple of free agents or some major signings and say, okay, now go get them and, and bring us a title. Uh, I don't think they have a core of those players quite yet. Um, so I think they're better off you know, conserving the money for now um, and what they do have investing in player development. And, you know, when the time is right, sure, then you can start to blow it out. And the, the Pirates will be in a position where the Nationals have been the last couple of years, where if they get close to winning, 
and they want to go get a, t- a player like a Jason Worth, you're going to have to overspend. I mean, you're just going to have to pay extra money to get players to go to teams that don't have a track record of winning. And, um, you know, I know the Nationals will criticize for that. There'll be a day where the Pirates will be criticized for that. But when you want to be an upwardly mobile team and you have no track record to sell to a free agent, what you need to show them is the money. Yeah. You know, uh, one team who's not been afraid to show people the money the last a decade is certainly the Yankees, but I'm a little confused as to what their direction is right now. It seems like they're a team that that's getting older. They have maybe bad contracts with Jeter and Arod, two stars who are definitely aging. Um, they never seem to have enough pitching, but they've been really quiet this year. Is there a greater plan that the Yankees have? I mean, how do they plan on continuing to contend as they get older? And it doesn't seem like they're replacing people at the pace that they used to. Well, I think the Yankees are doing the smart thing and that you really have to look at baseball as a period with two as a as a sport with two acquisition periods. The the off season, especially around the winter meetings when free agents get signed, that gets the most attention and that's when people start wondering, you know, if teams are spending a lot or in the Yankees case not spending enough. But you really, I think the other type, the other period of spending is during the season. Once you find out what you have and how you can add to it, and I think the Yankees are doing the right thing by waiting until that period if they need to go out and get more pitching uh, to try to pry it away from organizations. And in the meantime, you buy more time to see if some of your prospects, like a Manny Benuelos or Dylan Batances, have jumped up and are ready to contribute to the major league team. So. I think you have to find out about those options first uh, rather than go out and start spending money on, on uh, free agents that you know could help you. There's no doubt that uh, for the Yankees they can spend money, and it's not as if other teams, if they spend money and the player doesn't work out, it harms what they do otherwise and, and restricts them otherwise. You know, the Yankees can wash away their mistakes, so to speak, without penalties, so uh, it's a huge advantage they have, but... In terms of running an efficient business, I, I think they're doing the right thing here. You know, I, I think they're looking at a guy like Jesus Montero uh, being able to add to the offense, which is, let's face it, still a terrific offense. I don't think anybody's complaining that the Yankees haven't added there. Um, and it's a team built to win with power at the plate and power in the bullpen. And, you know, it's contrary to what a lot of teams do in terms of building rotations. And I think the Yankees feel like, hey, if our rotation is just big league average, we're still going to win 95 to 100 games because our offense is that far above average and we think our bullpen is one of the best in baseball. So, uh, you know, listen, it's not going to excite fans in December and January. I get that. But I actually like the, the sort of newfound conservatism that the Yankees have. And I, and I think, again, to, to write them off as a period of retrenching or cutting payroll, um, I'm not going to believe that unless they don't do anything in spring training or during the season as well. Are we maybe getting... A uh, true look as to what maybe uh, Brian Cashman always wanted to be as a GM. You know, like, is this his plan playing out, you know, not spending the big money? I mean, I always felt like maybe he was forced into spending the money on players like, I don't know, Randy Johnson maybe comes to mind. Are we seeing the real Brian Cashman now that he's away from George Steinbrenner and, and under the ownership of maybe a less... Uh, you know the, that the Steinbrenners are in charge now aren't as involved, and Cashman can kind of do what he wants. Or am I off base on that? Uh, it's probably analyzing that a little bit to the extreme, in the sense that there's still plenty of ownership influence on Brian Cashman. I mean, just look last year when uh, 
they signed uh, Rafael Soriano against Cashman's wishes, and that was a complete overpay for a guy that Cashman probably, well, he definitely didn't want, and he made that known at the press conference. Uh, and the influence of Hal Steinbrenner now is a very strong one, and he comes at the ownership of the Yankees from a different perspective than his father. He doesn't seek headlines. Um, I don't think he, he puts his ego into it. I don't think he values the... Uh, back pages the way that his father did. And I think in terms of the finances of the club, I think he runs a tighter ship where Steinbrenner was a little more impetuous. Um, he would go in with a budget and blow it up if he, there was a player out there that he really wanted. So I think the ownership influence is still there. It's a different influence than what it was when George Steinbrenner was running the team. Uh, and if you're the general manager of the Yankees, you, you still have to understand that you know, it, it's not your own show, uh, and Brian Cashman certainly has tremendous authority, but uh, you can't discount the ownership influence as well. The sportscasters are here with a great time for Ducci. Just a couple more minutes left. I, I wanted to ask you, you're one of the few uh, writers out there that haven't, as far as I know, fallen into the trap of Twitter. What has kept you away, and what is it that you don't like about Twitter? Well, I mean, I... I shouldn't say there's nothing that I don't like about it since I haven't tried it. But, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I come from a magazine background, and context is very important to me. And, um, you know, I think the, the certain marketing powers of Twitter just don't, are not attractive to me as a journalist. Um, you know, I'm not really in the marketing business, so in terms of selling anything, it, that, that part doesn't attract me at all. Uh, it's probably more of a, you know, making, uh, getting interested in the things that I do, having context and perspective and long-form analysis is much more intriguing to me than 140 characters or less. You know, it's funny, you and Jane Levy, I, I think the only two people that have ever been on the show that uh, haven't, that don't use Twitter, and you basically gave the same exact reasons as to why you don't use Twitter, um, certainly the limitation on the amount of characters is a huge reason why Jane isn't on Twitter. But I, I just wanted to point out one great thing about it. And, you know, baseball had two great days last year. They had uh, the last day of the regular season, which was just an incredible day. And then they had Game 6 of the World Series, which was an incredible day as well. And I feel like, as a fan, that those days were um, enhanced by having the chance to watch those games with all of the different people on Twitter and hear all the different opinions in that sense. Do you ever think that Twitter could be valuable in that way as a way to reach fans on, you know, a date and in an instant basis, you know, and maybe not, you know, when you plan a column, I'm sure that that takes, you know, days and research, but what about your immediate thoughts? Just things that are off the cuff. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's certainly value to it, especially in those sort of um, circumstances that you mentioned. I mean, I can't think of a, a more exciting night in baseball history than uh, the night of 162 last year. That was amazing. Um, I, I just think from my own personal experience, um, you know, I look at baseball a lot differently than fans do, so uh, I don't feel like it needs to be a shared experience in terms of my fandom. I'm actually, you know, I'm not a fan of any single team or player, I, I am a fan of how the game is played more than anything else. Um, I understand that that is really not the way fans look at games and fans, you know, are fans of teams and players. So, um, you know, in terms of that, I think I'd be coming at it from a different perspective than how most fans enjoy the game. Last thing, 
you wrote a very passionate uh, article about your alum, your, your school, Penn State, and I'm just curious where you stand today, what you'd like to see Penn State do in the future. You know, as, a, as an influential alumnist and, and someone that I'm sure the people at Penn State really care about your opinion, I know that for a fact, and I just wonder, you know, where you stand and, and what you hope to see happen as the years progress here as Penn State rebuilds its image. Well, it's really hard to explain. It's been a very difficult time for everybody associated with Penn State. Um, it becomes very personal, um, and I think that's because people who go to the school, went to the school, are associated with the school in any way, uh, have such pride in everything about Penn State. And it's difficult not to take the situation personally, the way that's, that it's been covered, the stories that have come out. Uh, you know, it's made it very difficult. And uh, you know, I'm disappointed about the way that the institution of Penn State has handled the issues, especially for me, looking at it from a media point of view, where they completely let the story get away early on and just didn't seem to be prepared um, to deal with you know, the ramifications of this huge story that they should have known, certainly, that was coming. Um, but, you know, my, also, my hope also is, as a father of a current Penn Stater, that you know, people look at Jerry Sandusky and the incidents there as an isolated incident that it's not reflective, certainly, of the kids who go there now and all the professors and all the good things about Penn State that happen on the campus every day and every year. Uh, and I think Penn State has done a very good job trying to move on from this and, you know, donate a lot of money to charitable causes and uh, certainly the awareness factor. Um, is much greater today when it comes to reporting these type of things and certainly back when Sandusky was on campus. Uh, I guess the one word that really comes to mind is sadness, though. It's the overall feeling that I have about it. That I, you know, I know so many good things about the school and so many people that are there, and I understand that the image of Penn State certainly is tainted by what was allowed to happen there. Um, and it's uh, certainly not going away. I certainly don't pretend that it does go away. Um, but I just hope that the, my faith in the people and the institution of Penn State, um, you know, this, the school and uh, and all the people involved there, uh, aren't thought of as people who, uh, you know, thought of in a negative sense because there's still a lot of good people there, and, uh, and I hope there are better days ahead for the school. Tom Verducci on the Sportscasters, I can't thank you enough for this. It really means a lot, and we really appreciate it, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, and best of luck. Thank you very much. Special thank you goes out to Tom Verducci for being a guest on the Sportscasters. We're going to move on here. we got a lot to do today. Season premiere of the Sportscaster, Season 2, Episode 1. We started to kind of fool around with this last season where we would do a top 10 list. Today it's going to be a little different. We're gonna, Our top 10 list, really the order isn't significant. Basically, Don and I are going to make 10 predictions for the upcoming year in sports, 2012. We're going to go back and forth. We have five each, and we will call this list the top 10 Sportscasters sports predictions for the year 2012. Kick us off, Don. All right, my first prediction this year is uh, maybe not 
the boldest or anything, but uh, I'm going to say that Aaron Rodgers is both the league and Super Bowl MVP of the current season. Um, the reason I bring this up is because there are some rumblings that maybe Drew Brees will steal it from him because of his record-breaking performance, but I, I, I disagree. And uh, the Super Bowl thing was just attacking on to make it a little more bold. But, I mean, really, if you had to lay money on either of those things, he'd probably be the favorite for both right now. Uh, in September, I predicted that the Saints and the Patriots would play in the Super Bowl. I might as well stick with that. I'm going to call the Saints the winner and say that Darren Sproles will be the Super Bowl MVP. Interesting. Uh, my number two prediction for 2012 is I will – this is kind of a knock on the NBA, but I'll probably watch less than 15 total minutes of the NBA <laughs> this season. Uh, maybe the playoffs will somehow find a storyline that puts that over the top for me. But Doubtful. It's doubtful, and it's shortened season, and the strikes, and all that stuff. It didn't help its chances for me. All right. I got a basketball one, too, and I'm going to say that LeBron James and the Miami Heat will win the NBA championship and that the entire world will hate it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in addition to that, he'll always kind of have that. Uh, LeBron will always have that little bit of an asterisk over it because he did it Short in the season. shortened season. Yep. Better win another one. All right, uh, my next two will be Buffalo-related. First one, Stevie Johnson has played his last game as a Buffalo Bill. Uh, We kind of brought it up. I'm not a Stevie Johnson hater by any means. Uh, Guys like Jerry Sullivan, who's a local guy here, absolutely beat him up for every immature thing he does. Uh, I think he's a guy that means well, maybe just isn't that smart. But the Bills, A, don't pay a lot to people. They tend to let guys walk. And they tend to value character. To some extent. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> so When they uh, feel like it. Two things that don't bode well for Stevie Johnson. The only way I think he sticks around is if they decide to slap the franchise tag on him, maybe. All right. I We're going to talk about the NFL draft quite a bit, especially after the playoffs. But I'm going to predict the top five picks. I'm going to say that the Colts are going to start off the draft by picking Andrew Luck. I'm going to say that the Rams are going to pick second and pick Justin Blackman, wide receiver from Oklahoma State. I think they're going to finally get Sam Bradford a weapon, and I think he's going to turn it around next year, Bradford. Number three, I think the Vikings probably are going to trade this pick, but I'm, I'm going to kind of you know, avoid trying to predict a trade and just say that if they stay at number three, they'll pick Matt Khalil, offensive tackle. I think the Browns will pick number four and pick Robert Griffin the third, but unfortunately I think someone's going to, in reality, get ahead of them yeah. into that Viking spot and pick RG3. But for now, I'll say the Browns will get him at four. And I'll say at number five, Tampa Bay is going to pick Trent Richardson. I know they got Blunt there, but I don't think they like Blunt. I know Blunt's a bad character guy, and I've heard nothing but great things about Richardson. The Bucks need to just improve in a lot of places talent-wise, and I think if they can give a running back that is consistent to take a little bit of the pressure off of Josh Freeman, that would definitely help. So I'll say the Bucks will pick Trent Richardson at number five. My prediction about the other Buffalo sports team, the Sabres, is that they will make the playoffs this in this season and win a round. Um, this is less a pat on the back or uh, less of a vote of confidence for the current team as it is, uh, and not even so much for necessarily the coaching staff, general manager. It's more about the owner. Uh, I don't think he'll allow them to middle through the remaining 40 or so games of the season. So I expect them to make some sort of big splash at this trade deadline, maybe moving a big piece like a Derek Roy or somebody, uh, Drew Stafford, anybody like that, something to shake the team up. Uh, And I think they do have the pieces there to be a playoff team. Guys like Robin McGeer and stuff like that should be a no 
no-brainer move to put this team in the right direction. So I think they will make the playoffs and win a round. And, I mean, man, all this team had to do was come out and perform pretty well, and the crowd would love them. And now the crowd was just quoted by, like, a national media member as being the quietest one he's heard all year. It's real the, negative there. Yeah, it's just real quiet building. I've been a game or a game or two this year, and it's weird, like because you'll sit and have a conversation. They just they're a middle of the road team, but they're not like a they're they're a team that just kind of makes it on talent alone. They're not an entertaining team at all right now. So, but like I said, the owner's going to do something. I have faith in the owner. And I think that some of the teams are battling with towards the bottom of these aren't that good anyway. No, you know what I mean. I think that they can they can emerge. The Winnipeg's, the yeah, Toronto's. All right, number four. Or, you know, I guess this would be number eight uh, <laughs> overall. I'm going to have a hockey one. I think the Ranger, the Rangers started the year with a win in the Winter Classic. I think that Marion Garbrick is going to win the Maurice Richard Award for most goals. Wow. I think that Ryan Callahan is going to win the Selkie. Lundquist is going to win the Vezina, and the Rangers are going to win the Cup. Wow. That would be impressive. Um, the Bruins basically did that last year, by the way, except for... It was Chara who won the Norris, right. Thomas who won the Vesna, and they won the Cup. Right. So. My last prediction is a fantasy prediction. I'm going to say that Peyton Manning will play somewhere, and he's a top-five fantasy quarterback. Uh, the bolder part of this is probably just that he plays it all, but his team and how lousy they are just shows what an asset and how valuable he is. And he would have a, he'd be hard-pressed to go to a team that is in worse shape than – the one he's currently made a perennial contender. So if Peyton Manning plays somewhere and if he looks good through the preseason and you have your fantasy draft, feel free to draft him wherever you would have with the Colts. He's, a, he's an all-time great talent. Yeah, If he's I mean, going to be on the field, he's going to be putting up numbers. Absolutely. All right, here's the last one. I'm going to say that Baylor will defeat Syracuse to win the national championship in basketball and cap off the greatest sports season in Baylor Bears history. The Baylor Bears beat Texas and Oklahoma in football this year. They won a bowl game. Robert Griffin the third won the Heisman Trophy. Yeah. The basketball team is undefeated right now. Uh, the first bracketology showed up on ESPN.com the other day. They were one of the four number one seeds. And uh, Syracuse looks really good, too. They've seemed to shelve the distraction of their controversy with Bernie Fine pretty well. And... I think that those teams will play in the national championship. Baylor will win, and uh, it will be an amazing year for that small school in Texas. You know, it's crazy. It was, I think, five or six, maybe seven years ago now that one of the Baylor basketball players killed another Baylor basketball player. And I think that they've rebuilt the program to the yeah, point really. where they can challenge for the national championship. is is truly incredible. All right, that's it for the list this week. We are going to take a break and come back with our good buddy, Lee Jenkins. <laughs> Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and graduated from Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SI.com as a senior writer where he covers basketball, football, and the sport closest to his heart, baseball. He's been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, the Football Writers Association of America, and the Colorado Press Association, and was named New York's best sports writer by the Village Voice. He is making an unprecedented seventh appearance on the Sportscasters and has been the most professional, kind, and accommodating guest we've ever had. A warm welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. How are you doing today, Mr. Jenkins? Excellent introduction. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, 
you know, I'm really excited to have you on today. Um, I got to share something a little funny with you. Uh, this is the season premiere of season two of the Sportscasters, and on the season finale of season one, we had Richard Deitch on the show, a colleague of yours, and he was so excited to call us on the carpet for our Lee Jenkins love. He actually said that we are, quote-unquote, in the can for Lee Jenkins. Well, Richard's a media <laughs> critic, so I don't like to, you know, I don't want to step on any of those toes. But, get, sure. but listen, this is what he said, though. He said that we're, you know, to be in the can for Lee Jenkins is a good thing because he said that you had a perfect 2011, that every column you wrote was good, and he had nothing but great things to say about you. And we're honored to have such a great relationship with such a great writer. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it, Steve. Well, they, um, there's no such thing as a perfect story or perfect year, but it was a fun, you know, the thing that made it fun last year was just that it was a great year in the NBA before the lockout. And so there was a lot, you know, I mean, there were good baseball stories to cover as well. Uh, but, but as far as basketball, it just felt like kind of a, a renaissance season. It was then jeopardized by the lockout, and maybe they, they kind of escaped in some ways because, see, the way the season started, it seems like they haven't been hurt probably as much as they feared they would. Well, I want to talk to you a lot about basketball. Before we get there, though, I want to ask you a San Diego question. Yeah. I know you're, you're in San Diego. You're close to the sports scene there, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the Chargers' decision to keep, uh, keep the general manager and coach around for at least another season. Well, I think it's unfortunate. I mean, it's a uh, it's it's always been kind of a risk averse organization. Um, they don't like to make a lot of changes at either head coach or GM, and usually the ones they do make are sort of precipitated by these ugly coach GM conflicts. So, um, you know, I mean, there's just no way to look at the evidence, to look at Norv Turner's body of work and his career, and conclude that he is a, a good head football coach in the NFL or that he's deserving of another job. I mean, if he were fired by the Chargers, there is no way that another NFL team would ever give him another job. So to me, that's kind of the most compelling evidence. He took over a team that was 14-2 and under Marty Schottenheimer. They actually fired Marty Schottenheimer, at one of those coach-GM conflicts, after a 14-2 and season. And, and Turner has sort of um, made them a little bit worse every year. I mean, he kind of he made them worse the first season, and they've missed, they haven't won a playoff game in four years. And when you think about the talent that's come through there, some of the Hall of Famers he's had to deal with, Antonio Gates, LaDainian Tomlinson, you know, the Chargers have had the rights in the past seven years to Eli Manning, Drew Brees, and Phillip Rivers, you know, three of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, and have very little to show for it. I think a lot of that goes on Norv Turner. Their GM... You may remember pretty well from Buffalo, yep. A.J. Smith. Um, it, to me, he's a bit of a different character because he's at least had success in the NFL. If the Chargers got rid of him, he would get another job. A.J. Smith drafted incredibly well when you look back at like the Chargers' 03, 04, 05 drafts. I mean, it's uncanny the success he had, and really he's gone dry. The past few seasons they've drafted very poorly. They don't have the depth they had, so when they've had injuries, uh, they've been exposed, and that's where Turner has been able to sort of deflect some blame because personnel-wise they're not as loaded as they were. But I still say a guy like Smith, at least he's had success at one time. You can sort of justify moving forward with him. North Turner has never had success as an NFL head coach. He's a coordinator, sure. He's, a, he's been a great coordinator, especially in Dallas with Troy Aikman, 
He's done some nice things for Philip Rivers. But yeah, somebody from San Diego. Um, it's a disappointing day. Because the other part of this, and I hate to run off at the mouth about this, but the, the other part of it is the Chargers need a new stadium or mm-hmm. they're going to move to Los Angeles. And, you know, I think it's, it's an underrated part of the stadium equation is that when, and, and you're probably looking at this in Buffalo as well, but yep. when teams succeed, you get this sort of groundswell of support. I know that happened in San Diego with the Padres. They went to the 98 World Series. Bam, um, Proposition C passed the following year, so they got their stadium. Because the Chargers have faltered for so long under Turner, and now he's coming back again, you know, I'm kind of looking at a situation where I could lose my hometown team um, essentially because North Turner failed <laughs> to create that groundswell. And that's a tough pill to swallow when a franchise can leave and the guy you've lost it because of, you know, is sort of a, you know, a guy like Norv Turner. I mean, hardly the kind of person you want to go down fighting with. Right. You know, from afar, there's a couple things that were telling to me. Uh, one is in the statement that the owner of the Chargers re- released yesterday, he said something like, uh, uh, this isn't a direct quote, but it, it was basically this. He said that he thought that A.J. Smith and North Turner were going to provide them the best chance of getting back to the playoffs. I, I don't know if I ever hear owners setting the goals so short. Like, they just want to get back to the playoffs. Like, next season, if North Turner gets them to the playoffs at, I don't know, 9-7 and seven, and they get whooped in the first round, is that going to buy him another year? Another like, is year, that the right? goal? And, and they act like... I mean, again, the AFC West is not the AFC East or the AFC North. I mean, making the playoffs in that division is you know, a really low bar to clear. I mean, the division winner this year has a guy who can't even you know, throw a pass, really. Right. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, the Chargers cannot, for a team with as much talent or at least quarterback play, at least if nothing else, you have to give them, they, they probably have a top 10 quarterback, even though he didn't have a good season this year. Um, you know, I mean, for them not to make the playoffs to me is uh, is kind of a travesty. But again, that roster and the talent of it is probably slightly overrated going back to what they were like a few years ago. Things turn over in the NFL so quickly, um, and they really aren't what they were. But still, you look at, you know, it's funny because Jim Harbaugh actually was a Charger. He coached at the University of San Diego, kind of a smaller college in town. Um, and I think he would he would have been such a natural fit for an aggressive owner. Uh, probably would have picked the Chargers, I think, over the 49ers last season if it came to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's kind of a tough tough thing to watch how quickly the 49ers have gotten good and how quickly the Chargers have plummeted. Right, and the Chargers are, just one more thing about the Chargers, they're one of the handful of teams like the Bills and the Jaguars and the Bengals that have struggled to sell out all their games and have had some blackouts, and I don't think that bringing back North Turner is going to actually like energize the fan base to buy more tickets, is it? No, it's going to do. It's going to do exactly the opposite. And it, it's probably a little bit like the Bills fan base, and that it, it's a great fan base. It's a, it's a great you know atmosphere when you're there. It's, it's, I think it's one of the best tailgate scenes in the NFL. Um, but but you're right. As far it, it's a really expensive ticket, and it's not a very moneyed area. Um, you, know, you don't have that corporate base uh, that a lot of cities have. There aren't you know, a lot of Fortune 500 companies or anything in San Diego. So you know, they, they do struggle in, in some of those ways. And you know, it'll, you know, the, a cynic would look at this and say, well, it gives them another ex- an excuse um, you know, if support does wane to move to Los Angeles next year, which is 
you know, very much a possibility. I mean, one of these teams, is, one of these cities is going to lose its, its team to L.A., and at this right. point I would put my money on the Chargers. Now, do you think that San Diego is a market that if they ever lose their team could get it back like Cleveland, or do you think that once it's gone, it's gone? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to say yes and, and keep the, the team name. The problem is the building stadium in a city like San Diego or just in California in general is so hard. Um, the land the land is so costly that they can't do what they're doing in other cities where they'll say to an owner, well, we'll give you the land if you build a stadium or we'll have the public financing um, for the stadium. You know, the land is such a big part of the equation in a city like that. It's so valuable. Um, and, and taxpayers don't want to give it away. And, you know, it's, it's just it's harder in California with the way the demographics are. Uh, you, know, you have more people from other places. You have more people from other parts of the world who aren't as connected to sports maybe. So it's harder to pass stadium initiatives in these kind of big, you know, West Coast and even, even or East Coast, these kind of big cosmopolitan cities. It's just harder to get stadium deals done. So I would say no, that they won't get it done. The difference in L.A., is that they're doing this with private money, basically. And there's no, the business base, much probably like Buffalo and San Diego, it's not there. I mean, right. they're not able to sell uh, these kind of massive suites. You know, it's an interesting market because it's actually a fairly big city, but it's a small market given that you have desert to the east, Mexico to the south, the ocean to the west, and then Los Angeles to the north. Right. Very interesting. So one more thing before we get to basketball. Uh, we talked a little bit about Richard Deitch and how he said you had such a great year. And I think one column that we could all point to as one that we loved was your column on uh, the greatest day in baseball history. Oh, yeah, that was just one that I really, really enjoyed reading. And I'm sure it was one you enjoyed writing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the idea for the column, kind of the process that you went through and some of the stories that you focused on and th that great night of baseball. Oh, thank, well, thanks for getting through. It was a long story, and it was a funny story because you know, the office was worried going into the last week of the baseball season that um, they wanted it to run like the week of the World Series ending because they, they were worried that it was a boring World Series or something like that. Right. And so you know, we, I kind of worked on this story and pulled it together, and then there was that epic you know, game six that the Cardinals won, and they come back and win, and it's one of the, probably the best World Series, most exciting World Series ever. So the story got shelved for a little while and allowed me to kind of, you know, go back and do a little more work on it. And, you know, it's one of those pieces where you want to get as many of the central figures from that last night of the regular season as you can, um, but the losers really don't like talking about it, right. and the winners really do. So it kind of became a story... Um, largely about the Rays and the Orioles and what that night was like for them. I mean, I, I put in everybody else, and, you know, the Red Sox are accounted for, of course, and the, and, and the Cardinals and the Phillies and everybody else, the Yankees. Braves. Um, but I thought that the best stuff, you know, the best material and anecdotes really came from the Rays and Orioles clubhouses. You know, I, I don't know if you ever talked to Joe Madden, but he is one of the most, um, he's just one of the best people in sports. He's one of those people you just want to, you wanted to sit down and hear him talk and hear him tell stories. And so when I got to talk to him about this, I knew it was going to be kind of a, kind of a gimme. Um, cause he just, he told a lot of great stories. I mean, the best one that I remember is, I think it was like in the seventh in Tampa. Um, and the Rays are getting, they're just getting hammered at that point. I think it's six, nothing Yankees and the Red Sox are winning in Baltimore. Um, and Madden goes up to the umpire, um, 
Joe West and said and said something like, "I hear it's raining in Baltimore. Um, the Red Sox are winning, but they have to sit around their clubhouse and think about it. That's going to work to our advantage." Okay. And there were little things like that throughout the game. I mean, Dan Johnson, who hit the game tying home run in Tampa, didn't even know he was hitting. I mean, he he was warming up in the cage, and he thought he was hitting for Desmond Jennings. And a security guard has to run and tell him he's supposed to hit for Sam Fold. He runs up there, you know, all, uh, you know, all frazzled. Has to get his new BP, his, his new gloves, his new his game bat, and goes up there and belts it, you know, belts a game tying home run, one of the biggest of the of the season, one of the biggest in Rays history. You know, and then moments like what was going on during that rain delay in Baltimore where, you know, the the Orioles are watching the Rays and sort of getting caught up in it and wanting the Rays to win sort of this, you know, small market camaraderie or something. And, you know, so some of the inside stuff from that night, like what guys were telling each other and what they were thinking and feeling as it was unfolding, uh, was probably the best stuff I had. You know, some of that interplay um, on the bench, you know, like, especially with Longoria, you know, when Johnson got up in the ninth, Longoria flashes back to a bat Johnson had um, when he was like three years ago in 08, when Johnson hit one of the big home runs that helped the Rays on that magical run. It was, it was actually a home run in Boston. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff like that going on that night. I mean, the, the Red Sox plane could have gone to four different cities that night. Their traveling <laughs> secretary had, had, you know, had four different itineraries based on how it would go. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, the, the stuff with the Orioles too is just so epic. I thought, like, um, you know, I mean, the ki- a kid who scored the game-tying home run, a September call-up. He lives in Illinois. After the game, he was so wired, he just drove all the way from Baltimore to Illinois <laughs> That's you know, crazy. without sleeping. <laughs> so it was just crazy. It was it was a great night, and uh, you know, especially if you're one of those people who doesn't really get into the Yankees, Red Sox, uh, you know, media obsession. I think that night you you were probably pulling pretty hard for the for, for the little guys, for the Orioles and the Rays, and for once you were probably rewarded. You know, I was thinking about that column on Sunday, uh, especially as it got later in the day. Because I was thinking that some of the similar things that were going on in that column were going going on in, in the world of the NFL. I was thinking about the Tennessee Titans as they were forced to watch the, the later games. And, and, you know, there was a couple of ways that they could get in, but there was more ways that they could go out. And I was maybe thinking about what could go through their head. I was thinking about the Saints as they were watching the Rams, who are maybe as unlikely as the Orioles, as they, the Rams were coming, uh, you know, making this comeback on the on the 49ers. And I was thinking, you know, it'd be great if we wanted to do another one of these articles and talk a little bit about these football teams and what they were going through as the day ended. But maybe there wasn't quite the uh, the magical finish because the 49ers ended up holding on. And no, uh, and there are there are always cool stories like that. Like whenever you have, you know, I think whenever you have players reduced to fans, it's kind of fun for all of us to look at it. You know, it's like, like what was going on that night with the Rangers, you know, they didn't even have a state, and they were just kind of all watching on their iPads or on their phones in the Anaheim dugout, or in the Anaheim clubhouse, I should say. So whenever you have situations like that, it's great. I, I think with baseball, it's a little different because it's just such a, that season is such a slow boil. It's so long. So whenever you kind of have this, rush at the end it, you know baseball inherently is is kind of slow and boring so whenever you get that it's almost like a payoff when you have a night like that at the end it's a payoff for sort of sitting through it for all these months and all these nights that don't seem significant you know the NCAA tournament it happens 
you know, every night. Um, in baseball, it just it just doesn't happen very often. And, and with the NFL, too, it happens, I think, fairly consistently um, that you'll have a situation like that. But I love all those kinds of stories because you get guys talking about what we don't see on TV, you know, th- their own interplay or what happened in the clubhouse. You know, guys running in in Tampa to check a score and then running back out and telling the, you know, and telling the guys on the bench and, um, you know, l- those little things like that, that that'll take us somewhere that we don't usually get to go or, or what's always fun. Let's do a few minutes on basketball. Uh, one thing, when we last talked, the deal was kind of just head broke and um, we were looking ahead to, to, to the season. But what hadn't happened yet was this kind of bizarre trade that was vetoed by the commissioner and then eventually Chris Paul gets traded. I'm just curious, what was your take? And do you think the commissioner set a really dangerous precedent by vetoing that trade? And did you really think it was that lopsided? Well, I know. I don't think it was that lopsided. Actually, it was a pretty good trade. I I don't think it was as good necessarily as the trade they ended up getting. Um, I mean, I guess David Stern proved himself to be a pretty good GM because he ended up getting um, I thought the Hornets a really nice a nice package and a, and a package that would be appealing to a new owner, which I think was more of his um, his motivation. I don't know that it's a dangerous precedent. I, I see where you're coming from, but the the difference is that the league owns the Hornets, and so you know when Dwight Howard gets traded, there will be a lot of people kind of saying, well, or, or I should say, if he gets traded, well, why doesn't David Stern veto this? Right. But the league doesn't own the magic. And, and the way David, what David Stern would say to that is he was sort of acting the way a club pre, in the role of a club president, which is the relationship that he agreed to assume when the league bought the Hornets. So Dell Demps is the GM, and Stern is the president. And in this situation, the president, Stern, said to Demps, no, I don't like the package enough. Now, I think that there were... There's a ton of conflict of interest there because you have other owners um, re- revolting, basically, against the trade, um, mainly because they feel like it's a good trade for the Lakers. Now, you can argue that it is or isn't a good trade for the Lakers, um, but it was just a strange sequence of events. I mean, you actually had some owners, like that Dan Gilbert letter, yeah. railing against the Lakers because they were going to be coming under the salary or getting closer to the salary cap, so they'd be paying less luxury tax. <laughs> so these owners who fatten up off the Lakers' huge luxury tax, like the Lakers are doing what they're supposed to do. They're trying to cut costs, get, get closer to the cap, and then, they're, you know, and then they're not allowed to do that because the other owners like that they pay such a high luxury <laughs> tax. So, I mean, it was just, it was a really, um, it was just a really shady situation, and you compound that with the fact that the Clippers didn't want to give up Eric Gordon in the deal, but then the league kind of magically gives them Chauncey Billups through the amnesty auction, which we'd never seen one of before. So they get Chauncey Billups, and then it's like, okay, now we can trade Eric Gordon. <laughs> you know, so there, there, you can, you know, there are a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that you can draw there. Um, but look, I live in Los Angeles, and you know, probably a, a decade of basketball has been shaped was shaped by that one decision because it made the Clippers relevant in a way that they've never been. Um, and, and the Lakers, I think, feel as though if they had gotten Chris Paul, uh, that Dwight Howard would have become so committed to making L.A. his destination the way Carmelo Anthony did with the Knicks that they might have ended up with Dwight Howard also. Wow, um, and then that's you can scary. And then a team that, that would challenge the Heat for a decade. Now, now that when it, nobody's going to feel sorry for the Lakers. I, I get that. Um, 
but it's still uh, <laughs> it's still an incredible sliding door situation. So we're about six games in. We're not, you know, there hasn't been a significant amount of basketball, but this is going to go quick. I think they're going to play 66 games in about 122 days or something like yeah, that. Right. Uh, has anything stuck out early? Any surprises at all or, you know, disappointments? Not really. I mean, I think yeah. we all expected uh, Miami and Oak City to be really good, and they, they are. Um, you know, I think da- I, you know, I didn't think Dallas would. I, I feared, I guess, they'd have a little bit of a hangover, but it's it, – it's, I guess, more severe than I expected. I mean, it feels like um, a season where East Conference has sort of an elite team, and then after that, it's going to be kind of a mess. It's going to be a jumble from two through eight in both leagues. And, you know, you could have a team, you know, get in as a seven seed and play in the conference finals. That's kind of like what happened in the last lockout in 99. The Knicks got in as an eight seed, and they went all the way to the finals. Um, but it definitely feels like Oklahoma City and Miami, while not unbeatable, um, are sort of head and shoulders above. Now, I shouldn't, I shouldn't dismiss Chicago in that. I mean, they played right. very well, and Rose has been, you know, I, just as good as he was last season. Um, to me, it still feels like they're a score away, but the way they play, they play so hard and play so great on defense, um, they seem to compensate for it. So, you know, no, I don't think there's been any, um, there have been any big surprises. I mean, I'm, I'm still curious. I think the Clippers are kind of a funny team to watch and, and follow. I mean, they really do, I don't know if you got to see them yet, Steve, they, they throw an alley-oop like every other play. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a mixtape team. I don't right. know if their defense is going to be good enough to, to really carry them. But, they, you know, it's a little like the Heat last year were sort of the experiment team, like everybody's kind of seeing how it would go. I think that's sort of the Clippers this year a little bit. And the other team I like, I'm writing about for next week, but I like, uh, I, I think Minnesota's a lot of fun to watch among teams that aren't, very good necessarily. Uh, you know, they beat Dallas San Antonio this week, and I think they're kind of a um, a fun one to to monitor for the future. You know, it's funny you you mentioned Minnesota because I wanted to bring something up. I I was reading the new Sports Illustrated last night on my iPad, and Dan Patrick always has an interview like you know in each uh, magazine, and he had Kevin Love um, in was the interview in this magazine, and Kevin Love. Uh, said something really weird, I thought. It's maybe back to what the Chargers owner had said. He he said that, you know, Dan Patrick asked if he thought that his team was a playoff team, and he said, well, if we if we can be the eighth seed, we're we're doing our job. Does, is that strange to you that the athlete is, you know, only five games <laughs> into the season is, is hoping to be an eighth seed? I, I've never heard anything like that before. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an odd admission, I guess. Um, but, you know, love is a very... Um, you know, he's a pretty candid guy, and it's true. I mean, if the Timberwolves were the eighth seed, it would be an incredible accomplishment, you know, for that organization to, to have done that. Uh, and the season would be a you know, unqualified success. So, you know, it's true, but you're right. We are kind of entering this um, – it's a little bit different phase in sports, and the NBA is a little different that way where there's a little more, I feel like, honesty um, about what you you can do and what you can't do. I'll give you an example. Last night I was out at the Lakers, and – talking to Mike Brown a little bit and, and a bunch of other reporters were too and he was talking about Kobe Bryant and how he gets more freedom than other players and that's something we all know um, but he basically just he just came out and said it he said look if he you know I'll allow him to take shots I won't allow Derek Fisher to take and I'll allow him to you know take chances and do more crazy stuff on the floor he gets more rope so, again, that's something that I don't think you'd hear Bill Belichick 
um, really say about players and stuff. Right. In the NBA, I think there's a um, there's, a, it, it, there's a little bit more unvarnished material, I think. You know, and I, and I like that. You know, I don't want to kill Kevin Love for being candid because that's a that's a mistake we we always make. You know, we we get aggravated when athletes right. are giving us cliches, but then when they're honest, then we kill them. You know, we so kill them. That's yeah. Right. So I mean, what do you want Love to say? I mean, right. The Timberwolves aren't going to win the championship. He knows that. Um, you know, they've lost the most games in the NBA the last two seasons. <laughs> If they if they finish eighth, in, they should throw them a parade. Right. Um, so I think Love, you know, is kind of seizing on that, and you know, and understands too that it's about setting expectations. If they finish ninth, if they finish tenth, those are fine seasons, also. Um, but no, it's a little, you know, Love's also a different character. I mean, he's really um, I don't know how to explain it, but he's uh, he's a really fun guy to talk to, and just very very open in that way. I mean, he won't he won't just sit there and give you the same old cliches that we go into every season thinking we're going to win a championship. You know, for a team like Minnesota, if he said that, it would just it would just sound so ridiculous. Right. Is there any chance he stays there past this season? Yeah, I think there's a really good yeah. chance he stays. Yeah. Actually, I, I talked to him last week for a little while, and I think. Um, I think there's a really good chance he's going to stay. I mean, they can, you know, under this new system, you know, I know it didn't really work the way people wanted it to work the first few weeks, but as it kicks in, as the new CBA kicks in, it will be easier for teams like the Wolves to keep guys like Kevin Love and the Clippers to keep Blake Griffin. And, you know, I, I think you will see less movement among those guys because they can offer more incentive to stay. You know, they can't offer the they call it the Derrick Rose contract, where you can like offer this incredible contract if you have a guy who either wins an MVP or may, or starts in two All Star games um, or is like an All Pro twice, something like that. Okay, so that's setting a really high bar. Kevin Love's probably not going to start in two All Star games, you know, in the next couple of years, but the Wolves can still give him a package that's better than anybody else. And I think when he sees Rubio and you know he's playing for a head coach who he knew when he was growing up. He played with Adelman's son um, in high school. I think there are a lot of reasons to stay. The sportscasters are here with our good buddy Lee Jenkins, who you can find on Twitter at si underscore Lee Jenkins. I'm curious, Lee, what uh, what goals have you set for yourself in 2012? What, what are you hoping to do as a writer? Make, make deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I just. You know, I'd like to try to find, I mean, I always try to do the same thing. I mean, I'm trying to find as many kind of fresh, big, you know, magazine caliber stories about the NBA as I can in the next several months. And it's not always easy because, you know, you get guys who've been written or you've written before. You know, I wrote a feature about Derrick Rose last year. It's like, I don't know what to do about him this season. So it's it's finding ways to write about the same people a lot of times, but in different ways, like finding different slivers about them um, that are interesting. Uh, and you know it's a tough, it's tough to kind of write those in-depth stories sometimes because, you know, in this sort of media landscape, access can be difficult to come by and uh, and trust and things like that. So um, that's always kind of the goal for me is, um, you know, just to find as many big and interesting stories as I can. You know, I know I'm really curious about Chris Paul and how he's gonna uh, like being in LA yet still being, you know, like he's been stuck in New Orleans, maybe not the biggest basketball certainly second in the city to drew Brees, 
if not 20th to 19 other Saints. But now here he is in L.A., and maybe he's second to Blake Griffin on his team, maybe not, but he's certainly second to Kobe Bryant in the market. So I know I'm really curious to see how Chris Paul will fit in in Los Angeles. And yeah, and you know, the interesting thing about that is, like, everybody makes such a, you know, a big deal about it, but they only have two years. I mean, he's only got two years, and they got to prove to him um, that, that he's that, that they're where he wants to be long term. And 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 Griffin can be a free agent too. So there are no guarantees for the Clippers. I agree, they're kind of. You know, they're kind of on the clock because if he doesn't enjoy his experience, they could be going through the exact same thing um, a year from now that the Hornets just went through with him. Um, I don't really think it's going to happen that way. I think it's going to be a good marriage for, for, for Chris Paul just because he has so many finishers around him, and uh, I think he'll be able to do enough of what he wants to do in terms of the backcourt, and I think that they will win. Um, I don't know how big they'll win, but I think they'll be a winning team, maybe a you know fourth seed, something like that. All right, last thing. I'm curious about this. Uh, the real world. Um, it was just in San Diego, right? They just had the San Diego season yeah, of the real world. Blocks from where I grew up, actually. Really? Yeah, I saw it, him, actually. I was home. Yeah. Yeah. Filming one day. Were you, I mean, why weren't you part of the cast? <laughs> they had a, they, they had a San they, Diego they did native. One there a few years, like a bunch of years ago, and then they just did one. It was it's funny because a friend of mine where I were riding, riding bikes one day, and we, like, saw all these cameras and everything. Cause it's funny. It's a really, like, um, I mean, it's a beach community, but it's mellow. It's not like a party area. So right. I'm sure the people around there um, just hated, hated <laughs> the whole experience of having them. They but may- I'll, have to, I'll have to tune in and check it out. Cause they go to this place um, called Beaumont. So that's where they, like, hang out. Okay. It's this kind of restaurant bar. And it's, like, it's at the restaurant bar where my parents go. I mean, it's, like, you know, it's also it's just a bunch of parents, and I mean, I go there whenever I'm back, but it's kind of a mellow, cool spot. And I, I find it funny to think they were going in there with all these camera crew and everything. <laughs> they made it look beautiful. I mean, the that house is, they stayed beautiful. in they was incredible, and it is beautiful. But you know what? It doesn't matter how beautiful it is when you're, you know, when your football team is whatever <laughs> seven and nine and eight and eight, and losing to the Chiefs and the Broncos. And nothing's beautiful, even if the weather's beautiful. It's, it's still hard. So what's uh, this is what we always close with. What what are we looking forward to from you? Anything? You know, I've got a story next week's about um, you know, about Ricky Rubio and, and and the Wolves. I think that'll be cool and some stuff on the website about Andrew Bynum. So um, yeah, I appreciate it. It should be uh, it should be a fun year. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Steve. Take care, man. Talk to you soon. Okay, take care, man. All right, I want to thank Lee Jenkins for joining us on the podcast. And before we move on, I just wanted to take a couple minutes to reintroduce the book club and update it. Basically what we do, and we did it pretty successfully last year, is every month or so we'll identify a sports book. We'll read it as the month goes on. We'll kind of, on the podcast, discuss some things that we've read. And then at the end of the month, we have the author on to kind of ask questions and talk about the book. We're going to start a new one at the beginning of February, but in the meantime, I wanted to let everyone know that right now I'm reading a book called War Room, and it's by Michael Holly, who has been on Around the Horn. He's a host of a radio show in Boston. It's a really good book and really interesting, and it's about the New England Patriots and their tree of coaches and how uh, Scott Pioli has went on to rebuild the Chiefs and how 
the Patriots have changed their scouting system over the years and things like that. And Michael Holly's going to join us next week to talk about this book. So if you get a chance to pick up The War Room on Amazon or a digital version on the Kindle or iBooks or anything like that, it's, it's really worth your time, and we're going to talk with Michael Holly about it next week. If you have a suggestion for what we should feature in February as the book of the month, send us an email. Our email is thesportscasters at gmail.com, and we'll consider everything and pick out a book for February. Last year, we had some really fun ones, Don. We had sports casting, which I thought was really good with our buddy John Wertheim. Scorecasting. Scorecasting, yep. We did the uh, uh, ESPN book. It had James Andrew Miller on. Uh, we did the Best American Sports Rating Series, and we were lucky enough to talk to Glenn Stout, the executive producer of that. So when the book club works, it works really well. Uh, and like I said, we're going to have Michael Holly on next week. All right, we're going to take a break and come right back with Michael Fabiano. Our next guest is from Waterston, Connecticut, and is a graduate of Central Connecticut State. He is a member of the Fantasy Trade Association Hall of Fame. In 2005, the Fantasy Sports Writers Association of America honored him for having the best series of columns about fantasy football. He has worked with the NFL Today on CBS and was the first fantasy analyst to appear on one of the four major networks. Today, he is the fantasy editor for NFL.com and the NFL Network. He isn't an American operatic tenure. Instead, he likes to rock a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Michael Fabiano. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing well, man. And, you know, I love hearing Warren, but, boy, it's sort of bittersweet now that uh, Janie Lane passed away a few months ago. Yeah, he's no longer with us. I mean, I remembered when we talked in August, I played a little skid row, and I think it was right around the time that Janie Lane passed away, and he said, oh, man, next time I'm on, we got to rock some warrant, and I remembered that, so that was some yeah. warrant. Yeah, yeah that, 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 was, that was sad, and the way that he died with, I guess, alcohol and, and pills or whatever the case may be, really sad, really sad, and um, he, definitely, he definitely will be missed by me and a lot of the other glam band fans out there, and I know there's a lot of us, although a lot of people don't want to admit it. Well, you know, for for Christmas, Santa was nice enough to bring me the new Duff McKagan book. Oh, and, really? Wow. Yeah, and I've been reading through that. And, you know, you just got to wonder how these musicians get through it. I mean, there's so many people who just fall by the yeah. wayside and, and die of heroin and drugs. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. And if, yeah. Oh, man. And the, uh, I haven't read it, but I mean, the Motley Crue book is supposed to be unbelievable. Yeah, and I heard and... they're making that a movie. Oh, I hope they do, because I'm one of the lazy people that rather go to the movie than read the book. <laughs> I'm with you on that. So, well, welcome back to the podcast. We really appreciate you making some time for us today. Um, it's We had you at the beginning of the season, so it's great to have you at the end. In the beginning, we were kind of making some predictions and looking ahead. This yep. time, we're going to kind of look back and, and just kind of, you know, think about how things went. And the first thing I want to ask is, how did you do? How was your... 2011 2012 fantasy football season pretty good uh eight leagues all together made the playoffs in all eight semifinals in seven and won four so that's pretty good wow that's really good so what went right and what went wrong i made good trades i obviously you've got to be active on the waiver wire i was able to grab guys like cam newton and uh, victor cruz players like that and to me I love making trades. Trades 
are part of the fun of fantasy sports, whether it's football, basketball, whatever the case may be. And I made a lot of trades. And honestly, man, it's just, I mean, I'm engulfed in this 24-7 during the football season and obviously during the off season too, I'm still engulfed in it. So I really just, um, a little bit of his luck too. I mean, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's all skill because a lot of it is luck, but, um, the breakout season from Matt Stafford, uh, was big. Cam Newton picking up Cam Newton was big. I had Ray Rice in a couple of teams thinking he was going to have a great year and he was phenomenal. So again, a little bit of luck and, uh, a lot of team management. And that's something you always have to do in fantasy football because the season doesn't end when the draft is over. You've got a lot of work to do still once that draft concludes and um, waiver wire work and, again, making trades. Now, I know you're a big Dallas Cowboys fan. and Don't remind me. Please don't <laughs> remind me. I know. and um, But i got to imagine that doing what you do, one of the things that is most interesting on a given Sunday is kind of monitoring the calls that you made, the sits or the starts, sure. the sleepers or the busts. Are there any that stick out from the beginning of the season that you're real happy you made a call mm-hmm. on as a sleeper or any busts that you decided that worked out or vice versa? Well, I mean, every week we do start them and sit them. If we're talking about in-season, uh, I remember – one start of the week in particular that I had Tim Tebow and everyone was killing me on Twitter. Fabiano, you're an idiot. You're a moron. You told me to start Tim Tebow and all this kind of stuff. And Tebow had done nothing for about three and a half quarters. And then he blew up in the fourth quarter and ended up scoring about 20 fantasy points. And I had a lot of apologies from people on Twitter after that. (laughs) But preseason predictions, I loved Stafford. Um, No one saw Victor Cruz coming. No one saw Cam Newton coming. I was dead wrong about Sam Bradford. I thought he was going to be a good sleeper, and he turned out to be just an absolute disappointment. I I think everyone was right about Jimmy Graham. I can't take credit for that because a lot of people in the fantasy business thought Jimmy Graham was going to have a big season. Uh, I was was right on Peyton Hillis, but then again, I had help because he was on the cover of the Madden game, so I knew he was going to be a bust regardless of what happened. Uh, Brandon Lloyd's another one who I didn't expect to have a good season. Uh, in 2011, I also expected Michael Vick to fall a little bit, and he did. The one thing that I can't believe happened and is going to really change the, the landscape of fantasy football is the fall of the running back this year. Mm-hmm. If you look at the top running backs, of course, you know you're talking about Ray Rice and LaShawn McCoy, Arian Foster, Maurice Jones-Drew. Look at what you're going to be dealing with next season. You're going to be dealing with Adrian Peterson coming off of an ACL. Richard Mendenhall coming off an ACL. Frank Gore is getting older. Michael Turner is going to be 30. He's had 300 or more carries in three of his last four years. Uh, Darren, Darren, uh, excuse me, Darren McFadden, he can't stay healthy to save his life. Where do you take him? Ryan Matthews has got a ton of upside. Where do you draft him? Uh, second or third round? I mean, he's pretty injury prone. Matt Forte ended the season with an injury. Fred Jackson, same thing. Chris Johnson was terrible this year. Where do you draft him? Sean Green was a disappointment. Ahmad Bradshaw had some injury issues. Willis McGahee's 32 or 33, you're not going to be able to trust him. Reggie Bush had a great year, but injuries are still a concern with him. Uh, Steven Jackson and Frank Gore, uh, two guys who are getting up there in age and, and have a lot of carries on their bodies. You're going to see a lot of quarterbacks and a lot of wide receivers and maybe even a couple of tight ends sneak right up into that first, second, and third round area where in the past it was a lot of running backs in the first round. Now you could see maybe five, Ray Rice, McCoy, Jones Drew, Arian Foster, maybe Forte. Uh, it's going to be a different fantasy football season in 2012 when it comes to the draft because you're not going to be able to pass up on someone like, say, Matt Stafford to get 
Frank Gore. Frank Gore's too much of a risk. And when you look at guys like Rob Gronkowski and Calvin Johnson and Jimmy Graham, can you really pass on these guys in the first three rounds now? Gronkowski scored more fantasy points than every wide receiver not named Calvin Johnson. Uh, Jimmy Graham scored the fifth most fantasy points if you put him into the wide receiver category. Calvin Johnson clearly was amazing. Most fantasy points among wide receivers in standard leagues. There's going to be a changing of the guard. I'm not saying that running backs aren't important. And in fact, if I have one of the top five picks, I'm taking a running back. But no longer am I going to be so steadfast in taking a running back in round one when I can get an elite quarterback instead. I want to ask you about the tight end position. I'm the kind of fantasy player who for a long time didn't like to have tight end as a separate position. I always liked to have the tight ends in with the wide receivers. And my only reason for that was because there was just no depth there. It was like, you know, take Tony Gonzalez, Gates, and everyone else. But right. now the tight end position has totally changed. Tight ends are almost wide receivers. I mean, Gronkowski and Hernandez especially are always lining up at wide receiver for the for the Patriots. You mentioned Jimmy Graham. There's so much depth there with the emergence of Jermaine Gresham and Brandon Pettigrew, and we go on and on. What do you think now is the way to handle tight ends in a fantasy league? Should we definitely have them separate now as the batch of them has emerged? Or has the way the position has evolved to be like wide receivers that there's even a better case to be made to have them treated as wide receivers? I like them as separate position. I, I like them in, in their own spot, tight end, and because there's been so many that have actually come out and produced well in, in a league that's become a passing league, I think it even lends more credence to the fact that, hey, this should be a separate position. You've got Gronkowski and Graham who are phenomenal. What's unbelievable is that two tight ends from the same team, the Patriots, were in the top three in fantasy points at that position. With Hernandez coming in third, uh, he had almost 105 fewer points than Gronkowski, but he was still third. And if all these tight ends are healthy next year, okay, so you're looking at Gronkowski, Graham are the top two guys. They're going to go in the top three rounds. I don't think there's any question about that. You've got Aaron Hernandez, Tony Gonzalez, Jermichael Finley, Jason Witten, Antonio Gates, who's on the downside of his career but still scored seven touchdowns in limited time. Vernon Davis is inconsistent these days, six touchdowns, still finishing the top ten. Brent Selleck is back on the radar. Don't forget about Dallas Clark who, if he comes back and Peyton Manning's back in Indianapolis, well, Dallas Clark is a top-ten tight end, and Fred Davis. He had 796 yards and three touchdowns, and remember, early in the year, he was splitting some time with Chris Cooley, and then he was suspended for the last four games. He would have had 1,000 yards. So you're talking about Fred Davis possibly being right up there with a Gates, with a Witten, and with a Vernon Davis. I take Fred Davis over Vernon Davis next year, all things being equal, if the Redskins keep him uh, in the mix there. So it's a deep position. I'm not going to probably go after a Graham or a Gronkowski, I'm still going to wait until the middle rounds, fifth round, sixth round, and I still think I can get some pretty good value there. You know, I, I'd imagine that one of the maybe more annoying or, or one of the times that you have to be the most patient in your job is listening to people talk about bad beats. And I want to share one uh, with you because, you know, got to antagonize the guest a little bit here. But, uh, uh-huh. you know, I was in the playoffs. It was the first week of the playoffs. And I had a nine-point lead going into the night game. He had Des Bryant. I had DeMarco Murray. DeMarco Murray got me three points, broke his ankle. Mm-hmm. I'm up by 12. I'm hanging on all night. Bryant gets one catch, point for that, 50 yards, five points for that, six for the touchdown, 12 points. I lost because he was the higher seed on the tie. It's the worst wow. beat I've ever had in fantasy football. I had Jermarco Finley, who got zero. I had Mike mm-hmm. Wallace, who got tackled at the one, which was originally called a touchdown, but then overturned. It was the right call, but it still points off the board. It was the worst, worst luck I ever had. It was my most expensive league, and I noticed someone on Twitter had wrote, fantasy football can be a cold-hearted 
B-I-T-C yes, sometimes. So I want to ask you, what are some of the tougher beats that you've seen this season? And what do you think about people who always want to tell you their bad beat stories? It's almost like poker. Yeah, hey, well, you know what? I actually like to, to hear people's stories about fantasy, and we have something called the Fantasy Faux Pas on NFL.com Fantasy where we have people send in what happened to them that was unbelievable this week or during the season, what happened to uh, sort of drive you crazy, pull your hair out, and uh, make you bust out the old Etcetera because of the headaches that fantasy football caused you. And there, there were several. I remember one where actually – I, I'm a Cowboys fan, as you said. Yep. And the first round of the playoffs in fantasy week 14, I'm playing against an opponent. Um, I have a 30-point lead going into the night game. The Cowboys are playing the Giants. And my opponent had Leron Robinson and Miles Austin. Okay. I had nobody left in a 30-point lead. And the Cowboys choked, sucked, blew it, whatever you want to call it, um, lost to the Giants. But... Ron Robinson and Miles Austin were still good enough fantasy-wise to beat me. So not only did I lose in that fantasy <laughs> league, I also had to suffer through my stupid Cowboys getting beat by the team in the NFL that I hate the most because I'm a Northeastern Cowboys fan. That was the big thing for me. I couldn't stand that. I was so mad. And I actually had a good fantasy season because I won four titles, and so I can't really complain about it. Uh, any sort of bad luck going on because I had good luck this year. It Listen, it takes a little bit of luck to win four titles out of eight leagues. But my one complaint isn't fantasy-related. It's about the Cowboys. <laughs> so, and I had a whole rant on, on my Twitter account, uh, Michael underscore Fabiano, on Sunday night when the Cowboys I was watching. the Giants. Yep. I was so ticked. And, you know, God, God bless Jerry Jones. He comes in, and, you know, he's got the Jerry Dome. And I got my buddy Elliot Harrison actually – uh, sitting over here to my left, and Elliot and I are good friends, and he's a big Cowboys fan. He's from Texas. And we always get into disagreements about Jerry Jones. And you know what? God bless Jerry Jones. I love Jerry Jones. He gave us three titles. Uh, he gave us the titles with Jimmy Johnson. He gave us the title Switzer. with Barry Switzer. Yep. But you know what? Ever since the majority of the guys who Jimmy Johnson brought in have gone, the Cowboys have sucked. They've won one playoff game in 15 years, and any other organization would fire the GM of that team <laughs> in a heartbeat. And Jerry Jones is turning into, and what, this is what scares me, he's turning into Al Davis. And God bless Al Davis, he was great for the NFL, and he was one of the innovators uh, in pro football. And uh, I'm taking nothing away from him. But towards the end, he made a lot of bad decisions football-wise and personnel-wise. And coaches would come in and out of Oakland all the time. And I'm seeing the same thing with the Cowboys, and I'm seeing Jerry Jones thinking that he's made good personnel decisions in the last 15 years, but there's an atmosphere in Dallas that has developed with very little mental toughness and a lot of stupid penalties and a lot of stupid decisions that really bothers me. And uh, Harrison's over here laughing at me as I, as <laughs> I speak. That's the thing that, that really sort of gets my goat because I'm a huge Cowboys fan, and um, it's been tough the last few years. I mean, even that one year when we were 13-3, and three, had the bye. It was the year the, the Giants won the Super Bowl and beat the Patriots, who were undefeated before that. The Cowboys were 13-3. and three. They went home, uh, had a divisional game, had a bye week. I think I had 12 penalties in that game and lost. Yep. Again, I'm getting on my, on my soapbox <laughs> and talking down about the Cowboys, the team that I love because I'm passionate about it. But 
I had a I had a pretty good fantasy season, so I think the Cowboys were my biggest disappointment uh, from an NFL season perspective. I just read Jeff Perlman's book about the '90 Cowboys, and I loved it. Uh, last thing, and I'll get you out of here. It's the Sportscasters mm-hmm. with Michael Fabiano, who he mentioned he's on Twitter at Michael underscore Fabiano, and I, I want to say that my favorite pregame show in all of sports is the work that you guys do. Uh, with Damashek and Rank, you guys have a great show, yep. and I love it. And when you were on, it, and when you were on in August, uh, we created a league with our listeners as kind of a thank you to you for being on the show on NFL.com. We followed the way that you said you love to play fantasy football. I defended mm-hmm. the throne. I won that league. We're going to keep it going for the playoffs, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the NFL. Uh, dot com fantasy game that you guys promote so well with the cool commercials with the bad day mm-hmm. and uh, you've had some tweets so why don't you talk a little bit about the fantasy game and how fantasy works during the nfl playoffs and and you know we'll let you go on that well it's the nfl fantasy playoff challenge you go to nfl.com slash playoff challenge and sign up you don't draft a team but what you do is you set a lineup every single week of the postseason with a quarterback two running backs two wide receivers a tight end a kicker and a defense And basically, the premise of this game is to pick the most productive players on the teams that you think are going to last the longest. So coming into the wildcard weekend, Drew Brees and the Saints are going to be a popular pick. Darren Sproles, Jimmy Graham, John Casey, guys like that will be very popular. Every time you start a player and that player's team wins, if you continue to start that player in the next week, you get double points. If that player wins in the divisional round and that team wins, keep him active in championship week and conference championship week, you get triple points. Mm. And if that team goes all the way to the Super Bowl, you get quadruple points. So think of the Aaron Rodgers Green Bay Packers last year. They were a sixth seed, got into the wild card rounds, and went all through the Super Bowl. Every single round that you started Aaron Rodgers, for example, you got single points in round one, double in round two, triple in round three, and quadruple in the Super Bowl. And that's where you win. And you can win a trip to the Super Bowl in New Orleans next year, Super Bowl 47, which is a great prize. And the one strategy that people have to really consider here is that you don't have to play someone who's actually playing this weekend in round one. Say that you think Aaron Rodgers is going to go back to the Super Bowl and the Packers are going to win it all. You can actually play Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback in a wild card weekend, get no points from him, but you're get eligible double to get week. double points the following week, triple points the following week, and quadruple points if the Packers make it to the Super Bowl. I think, the, I think the Saints are going to the Super Bowl, so I'm riding all in on the New Orleans Saints. I've got Breeze, Sproles, Colston, Jimmy Graham, John Casey. I think they're the team. Uh, typically, if we've seen anything over the last few years, it's that a hot team it, it should be uh, considered a real favorite to, to make it to the Super Bowl. We saw it with the Cardinals a few years back, with the Packers last year, with the Giants a few years back in, in 2007. So the, the Saints have won eight games in a row. They've beaten the Giants. They beat the Falcons twice. They beat the Lions during that eight-game winning streak. So they're not they're not beating just these dog teams. They're playing postseason teams three, in fact, and four wins out of those three uh, from those three teams because they played the Falcons uh, a couple of times as an a- NFC North opponent. I just think they're the team, and that's what you really need to do. You need to make a decision on okay. I think the Patriots are going to the Super Bowl this year, so I'm going to start Tom Brady in Week One. I think he's going all four. I'll put Gronkowski in there. My opinion on the Patriots is that I don't want to pick a team that has a defense that's ranked 31st right. uh, defensively. That scares me. Same thing with the Packers. They're 32nd in defense. They cause a lot of turnovers, as my buddy Elliot Harrison likes to point out, a lot of takeaways, which is going to help you in the NFL playoff challenge. But number one, having a 32nd ranked defense scares me. And number two, 
if we've learned anything, the NFL is really unpredictable. So it's pretty easy to pick the Patriots and the Packers, and chances are that's not going to happen. I think it's going to be the Saints and the Ravens. My, that's just my opinion. So I'm starting Ray Rice this week, even though he's not playing, because, again, he gets double points in the next round. And there's just not a lot of good running backs that I trust in this first run. I don't know if the Giants are going to go too far, even if they beat the Falcons. Whoever wins that game, I think they're going out in the next round. Same thing with Arian Foster, Cedric Benson. Whoever wins in that game, I think they're going out in the next round. So this is the thing that uh, makes this game not only challenging, uh, but, uh, but a lot of fun. And you can replace guys every single week, so you never have to have a dead spot in your roster. Yeah, it's an awesome game. It's really fun. Uh, thanks for the strategy tips. Thanks for the time today. We really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking to you sometime in the summer to get ready for our, our drafts next year. Thank you very much, Mr. Fabiano. You got it. And one last thing, too. If yeah. you want to play against me, uh, go to Michael underscore Fabiano on Twitter or go to NFL.com and check out the playoff challenge. And I've got leagues out there that you can actually join. And the one league that you can join right now, the league number is 21029, challengegames.nfl.com slash playoffchallenge slash leagues slash 21029. And you can join me and probably beat me because I haven't fared too well in this thing over the last couple of years because I keep picking the best teams, and that's why this year I'm going a different route. So feel free to join me on there. All right, 21029. I'll make sure to plug it during the show. Thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to talking to you in the future. Take care. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, we have Let Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. Thank you to Michael Fabiano, the fantasy editor for NFL.com and the NFL Network for joining us. Michael Fabiano, good dude, Don. Yeah. Like him. All right, five on fantasy today. We're going to kind of close out the fantasy season that was and spend a little time looking ahead to next year's fantasy season. What we're going to do is we're going to give out some fantasy awards. We're going to talk a little bit about playoff fantasy football. We're going to recap the listener league. We're going to recap the expertly that Don and I were in, and we're also going to give two mock drafts, Don and I, first mock draft for the first round of next season. All right, so we're going to start off with our fantasy awards, and I'll give mine out first. Well, I'll give my first one out first. Here's what I did, Don. What I did is I gave a fantasy MVP at each of the three big positions. Okay. So my fantasy MVP at quarterback was Drew Brees. My fantasy MVP at running back was LaShawn McCoy. 15 touchdowns, and my fantasy wide receiver MVP was Calvin Johnson. Okay, I gave an overall MVP, which was tough, but I honorable mention goes to Calvin Johnson, who uh, 86 catches. Far and away had more points than his next positional player. My fantasy overall MVP is Rob Gronkowski. Uh, Rob Gronkowski finished as the number one overall tight end. He had by ESPN standard scoring 233 points. That is an average of 2.88 points per game more than the second best, who is Jimmy Graham. Um, basically what that means is every time you had Gronkowski in your lineup, with the exception of his bye week, you were, were a three-point favorite. 
when you were playing any team other than the one that hit Graham, you were starting with a better than seven point per game average. Wow. Than Rob Gronkowski, the number three overall tight end in ESPN standard scoring was actually his teammate Aaron Hernandez, who had 127 points. So I mean, he almost doubled up the third best player. So if you played in a league that required a tight end position and you had Rob Gronkowski, you probably did amazingly well this season. In our PPR leagues, uh, he had 329 points, which was the 11th most at the tight end position, and you probably drafted him in the. Eighth, ninth yeah. round. Good choice. All right. I gave out an award for the fantasy least valuable player. I picked Michael Vick, a quarterback. This oh. is a guy who you had to pick in the first round, maybe even the first five, five picks so, yeah. to get him on your team, and he just did not perform. At running back, this was really easy. I picked Chris Johnson, another guy who, depending on when you drafted, you probably picked in the first round, never quite yep. lived up to it. And at wide receiver, I picked Deshaun Jackson. Spent the whole year pouting, yep. uh, just was never any good, and was outplayed, quite frankly, by Jeremy Macklin, despite all the injuries that Macklin battled all year. Good choice. Uh, my least valuable player, again, I did an overall, and I went with also with Chris Johnson. He was a number 16 running back, so not even overall, and you're drafting this guy. I had a draft late when he was still holding out, and he still didn't go. In, I mean, he went at the eighth spot. Um, I'm not sure how he would have. I mean, that's the lowest you were going to get him. Is it somewhere like eight or nine? If you drafted after his holdout or very early and just assumed he wouldn't hold out, you probably had to draft him top three. Um, I would have liked that draft pick too earlier in the season with yeah, no them kidding. getting a real quarterback and nice wide receiver and Kenny Brett, and then he comes in and just was garbage all year long. I mean, I, where would you touch him next year? I mean, he's going to be like a third-round pick next year. So. He would have to be definitely my second running back. Right. And there's probably about four or five guys I'd rather have as my second running back. Again, Vic's a good choice. Uh, I think the reason I went with Johnson is because his had nothing to do with injuries. He was just he played all the games. a bust. So Chris Johnson was my least valuable player this year. You know, year. I don't even – I can't even find him. I, don't, I mean, he, he really – he performed poorly. I mean, I'm trying to look at a list of the top-scoring players here, and I can't find them. Yeah, I know he's number 16 overall running back in ESPN standard scoring, so I mean, I imagine he's 60 or 70 overall yeah. once you get behind all the quarterbacks. Ouch. All right, I have a fantasy surprise at each position. For quarterback, I picked Cam Newton. He's a guy who went drafted in virtually every... Undrafted. Every league, yeah, undrafted. And uh, he had a great season. So that's my quarterback. Running back, I picked Darren Sproles. I think a lot of people maybe yeah. thought that Mark Ingram would be the quarterback or running back to pick in New Orleans, if not avoiding the running backs in New Orleans altogether. And in a PPR league, if you picked um, Sproles. Sproles yeah, he's a no-brainer number two in a PPR league. Yeah, and he performed like a number one you know, in a PPR. So definitely he was a great player to have on your team. And Do you think my, he gets overdrafted next year? He might. Yeah, yeah, he might because he's not. He, this is the best year he's ever going right, to have. Right, right. I mean, he set the record for yards to all-purpose yardage in the season. He's never going to do that again. Right. Uh, and wide receiver, I picked Jordy Nelson. That yeah, that's a good. I one. I mean, he was just fantastic and probably the best Packers wide receiver. I mentioned him in our next category, uh, but my surprise of the year is also Cam Newton. He was a number four overall player in the league. This is a guy that 
probably wasn't drafted in your leagues. So if he wasn't my my winner for the next category, he had to be my winner for surprise of the year. So Cam Newton, he's another guy that I, I think will probably be slightly overdrafted next year. You might see him go in the first, second round, and I, I wouldn't touch him there. I'd, I'll make him do it again. Like I, I was a doubter in the beginning of the year. He proved me wrong. Maybe he'll prove me wrong again next year, but I think he'll be overdrafted a little bit. The last section I did was free agents, people that you probably picked up in the free agency market. Again, quarterback, there was no one to pick besides Newton. Right. I mean, I considered Dalton, but he really didn't have the fantasy no. numbers. It's Newton all the way there. If anything, the, maybe the second best was Tim Tebow. He might have right. saved it's, you at the yeah, end of the year. Yeah, he may have. In a pinch. Uh, at running back, despite his injury and despite getting a late start, I still thought DeMarco Murray was the best running back that you could have picked up as a free agent. You know, it seemed like – I mean, it's this is a tough category because it depends on how deep your league is. Right, right. But I think generally speaking, this is a guy who was added as a free agent. And he gave you a, he gave you a really nice stretch during the buys especially, Yep. you know, where he was a nice – little fill-in and scored a lot of points for you a few weeks. And at wide receiver, this is a no-brainer. It's Victor Cruz. Right. I mean, Victor Cruz is one of the top fantasy scorers all season. Um, he was 15th overall with 309 points, uh, one of the best wide receivers. And I just thought, you know, he probably – everyone in every league probably drafted Hakeem Nicks really high. Yep. Uh, you might have drafted Mario Manningham, but you probably didn't draft Cruz. Definitely didn't draft Cruz, at least none of the leagues I was in, and he was a stud all year almost. Number yeah. three wide receiver behind only Welker and Calvin Johnson in the PPR. And Jordy Nelson was number four. Right. Um, going back to what you said about the running backs, another guy that was a free agent pickup, but again was kind of a short-lived success, was Kevin Smith. Uh, so it is tough to pick a guy better than DeMarco Murray, even though it was kind of short-lived. My free agent, number one overall free agent pick this year was Victor Cruz as well. Um, standard scoring in ESPN, he was the number four. I think Jordy Nelson was all the way up to two in standard scoring. He had a lot of long touchdown passes. Well, yeah, you, you knock Welker off if you're not in a PPR because Welker had 122 right, receptions. Right. So that's 122 of his points. So um, I made this pick, Victor Cruz being the number one free agent pickup of the year, assuming that Jordy Nelson and Marshawn Lynch were drafted, even if they were drafted really late. Because uh, Lynch is another guy that, for a guy that wasn't really highly touted, he played like a top-end number two yeah, running back. Yeah, he had back. a great season. So he really did. He'll be another guy. I don't think he'll get overdrafted next year because I don't think he's that big in the be name, interesting to see what team he's on next year. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun to make these predictions this early. Yeah. All right, I think that was it for my awards. Did yep. you give out anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, so the number two thing in five on fantasy today is we're just going to talk for a minute about playoff fantasy football. Uh, NFL.com is a great game. I'm not going to go into it much because hopefully you just heard Michael Fabiano explain yep. it. But that's a great game. Dan, you mentioned some other options. Yeah, ESPN uh, also has a fantasy game, and it's kind of the exact opposite of uh, Fabiano's and NFL's that where you just you pick players and multipliers and all that. Uh, ESPN works on a salary cap system, uh, kind of like their Gridiron Challenge game. Yeah, and the old school uh, what sporting was it news. Sporting news one was called like Sandbox or something like that. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, it's stock market driven. So you buy players and you can sell them based on their. You have a fifty million dollar salary cap, and they're all given a value to start. And I think that value will change throughout the playoffs based on ownership and performance and stuff like that. So, b totally different options. Uh, 
but they're both a good time and they're both free, so you might as well check them both out. I wanted to mention one other way that we've played in the past, and no one has a site that hosts it exactly yeah, this way. Yeah, it's too bad because so yeah, it's hard it's, to score. It's really it's, hard to score, but, but it's, it's fun really to play. fun. Yeah. Here's the idea. Basically, you take the, what, there's 12 playoff teams, right? Correct. So you take the 12 playoff teams and you break, you have a 12-man roster. I think we usually did two quarterbacks, two running backs. Might have been three running backs. So three running two, backs. Three, five, maybe one and one. Yeah, that sounds right. Or maybe right. you had a kicker. I don't know. I know we had tight end separate maybe. Okay, so maybe it's like two, But three, basically four. you got to set up a 12-man roster any way you like between the positions that you like, and then you have to pick one player from each team. So the strategy is is that you want to pick like your kicker and your defense to be teams that are going to like lose Eliminate, in round one, right. and you want your quarterback and your running backs to be around as, as long as possible. The only negative thing about doing it this way is teams do get mathematically eliminated pretty quickly. Right, so especially, especially if people have, have the same quarterbacks. Right. And, so that's the only negative part, but it, it is really a fun format. It's really fun to pick your team, all the different possibilities. It's an easy casual league to do, too, because you only have to make your team once. Right. And then you just have to kind of ride them out through the whole thing. Like you said, teams do get eliminated. And the other negative, like we were saying, is it's a lot of pen and paper for the and person And once that we does did it. get the spreadsheet active and and set up the way that it it did it wasn't that hard right because remember we had it set up where on the one page you'd only have to in, input, input all the, score the scores for each once, player, right and then it filled into the team so we did it for a few years and probably even harder than scoring it was just collecting the money for it because <laughs> yeah you know it's in such a small amount of time and yep you know so that's always a problem with fantasy sports but all right, and number three in five on fantasy today. A quick recap of the listener league. I won. Yay! One of us. Uh, That's right. I well. was the champion. Congratulations! It says here on, on NFL.com. Congratulations <laughs> to the 2011 league champions, Backspacers. That was me. Nice. Yep, I won seven and six in the regular season. Finished second in my division. Ran the table in the playoffs. Uh, won the league. I beat. The Pittsburgh Feelers, which was Jared. Team good end to end. Yeah. Yep, he was good all year. Started six and zero, finished nine and four, finished second in the league, lost in the championship game to me. Uh, we are Penn State. Jose Andres finished third. Our buddy Jimmy Browley and the Gordon Fish Sticks finished fourth. Don, you finished fifth. What you talking about? Hillis finished sixth. It was a really competitive league. Yeah, that's the only thing I was going to say. I was most impressed with that in that league is right from day one when we drafted it at your house. We looked at the teams afterward and was like, there's not a bad team here. And it turned out to work out that way that somehow, and it's not a shallow league. It was a 10-team league. Listen to these scores league. in the playoffs. In the quarterfinals, what you're talking about, Hillis lost We Are Penn State 158.84 to 151.88. Okay? Yeah. You lost me 159.4 to 152.6. So we have a seven-point game basically and a six-point game. Then in the semifinals... Pittsburgh Feelers won 137.76 to 135.9. Wow, that's amazing. Yep, and I won 174.8 to 143. So that was a pretty big margin there. Yeah. The championship was 145 to 124. And the third place game, get this, 152.52 to 152.46. Wow. So, so it couldn't have been a closer 20, league. 20 yards aside of the league, basically. Basically. That's crazy. So thanks to everyone who played with us. It was a really fun league, and we'll definitely do it again next year. Yeah, good year. job drafting, too. All right, number four, really quickly, 
Don and I mentioned it many times. For the first time, we were in a 16-team league. Uh, we were invited by Jay Clemens, uh, who writes fancy stuff for the National Football Post. And Don and I made it to the championship game before falling in a, what had turned out to be a really close final. Um, we lost in the finals 108-95. to Our strategy worked well in that league. Yep. We ended up with either the number one or two overall quarterback and the number one overall receiver. Really, it was our depth that kind of hurt us, and we knew it would. I mean, that's such a shallow league, and we could never find a running back, and Joe die was just no good. You know, and we tinkered with this roster all the way through. We picked up Khalil Bell (laughs) for the final, and he got us 15 points. Our wide receivers let us down in the final a little bit. Santana Moss only had four points. Nate Washington only had seven. Calvin Johnson had 16. One thing that kept us in this league was it was real low scoring, Yep. unlike the listener league, and that kept us in this. And, you know, having Aaron Rodgers on this team, he had 35 points in the final, and he performed every week for us. And the other team had Drew Brees. That was in the final, the winner. Right. So I think in this 16-team league, it was super important to hit on our first-round pick, and we did. With Rodgers. And, and, you know, that's why we were there in the end. And another thing is we picked Witten, and Witten only no. scored two yeah, points in the bust. final. And he just didn't do it. You know, if we would have picked Jim, Jimmy Graham when we picked Witten, we would have won the league. Right. Yeah, it was a tough year for uh, tight ends. I mean, the top tight ends, Clark, Witten, Gates, none of them really gave you much. Finley was if a guy I liked Finley a lot. Finley in the quarterfinals, he got you a zero. Yeah, Finley was a guy I liked a lot, and he was a bust this year. All right, so thank you to Jay Clemens for having us, and we, we, we had a good showing. Yeah. All right, last thing, number five here on 5 on Fantasy. We're going to do a mock draft for the first round next year, 10-team league. I did it as a PPR. I think Don did it as a standard. Fair to say? I'm not sure much would change with mine. Okay, I, I did consider PPR, I guess. We'll, we'll call yours a standard. We'll call mine a PPR. Okay. So give us your first round. My first round, my number one overall pick this year, uh, it was – some people's number one overall this year, but it was banged up. This year, he's fought through injuries, but I think he'll be fine. Uh, Arian Foster, again, looking this far ahead, it's hard to find guys that are totally safe. My, my number two, who's right with him, is Ray Rice. My number three is LaShawn McCoy, all guys that kind of finished near the top. Arian Foster, if you look at his games that he played and finished, he probably averaged more points than any other running back in the league. So I guess I'm banking on him being able to stay healthy. My number four is Aaron Rodgers. I'm not one to pick take quarterbacks early, but again, if I was if I was actually drafting this team today, you gotta think of a guy that's gonna be safe, and Rodgers is about as safe as it gets. My number five pick is the first wide receiver, that'll be Calvin Johnson. Uh he's just awesome. He's a freak of nature, and again, a relatively safe pick. My number six, and this is where you start to really play guessing games. Uh, my number six is Matt Forte. Uh He's hurt now. He's done for the year. I don't think it's an injury that's going to keep him out. He should be back fully to start the next season. So Matt Forte at six. My number seven is a guy I liked a lot this year and disappointed me because it was a real early injury, but Jamal Charles, again, I'm assuming he'll be back and ready to play next year, and he's as safe as any of these next few guys, I guess. My number eight is Darren McFadden, again, a guy that played great until he was injured. If he can, and it's always his foot. I guess that's the scary part about yep. him is he's always, it's always his foot. My number nine is another quarterback in Drew Brees. Uh, again, if you're picking for safety, you could probably move Brees way up this list. He's going to be a top 
five or t- maybe top three quarterback every year. He's got that offense, and really with any team he's on. And my number 10 is Maurice Jones-Drew, who I put on the list at the end instead of Peterson. Jones-Drew really isn't an injury risk. I mean, every year people expect him to get injured just because he gets another year older and he's always kind of banged up a little bit. His risk is more his offense. I mean, he was amazing this year. We already discussed with that terrible offense. So to expect him to do that again is is a lot to ask. This is really fun because we have vastly different lists. Really? And I don't know if that's because I considered the PPR aspect or if I'm being an idiot or what, but we have really different lists. Check this out. My number one is Drew Brees. Look, at I'm a little bit of a homer, but I have a feeling that the magazines next year, is gonna everyone's going to have quarterbacks on the front. And I think that yeah. the trend is going to – and Michael Fabiano mentioned this. I think the trend is going to go away from running backs a little bit Two quarterbacks. Drew Brees led our PPR league in scoring this year. He had the most points. I think he had the most points last year. He has the most points most of the time. <laughs> I mean, he just he does. He just scores a ton of points. The only thing I would say he about had 491 qu- points. In quarterbacks our leading the way is again. It's it's if it's if that happens, it's because of the safety of the pick. I think because the drop off from someone like Tony Romo is right, not Romo's, that well. It, it Like, Romo was the eighth-ranked quarterback. He had 317 points. Drew Brees had 491. So you're losing what per game there? About three, four points it's a game. almost 300 a points. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know. It's certainly debatable, but right. I, like you said, when you have the first overall pick, you want to hit on it. You don't pick right. for a long time. And I just think it's Next year will definitely safe. be an interesting year. Uh, number two, I have LaShawn McCoy. Probably because it's a PPR. That's why I gave him a little bit of an edge. I have Ray Rice as number three. Right. Again, I'm considering PPR here. Putting him a little... And I have Foster four. So I think the top three running backs are McCoy, Rice, and Foster. Uh, yeah, no doubt. I picked them next, and I gave McCoy and Rice a little bit of an edge because of PPR. Right. Number five, I have Maurice Jones-Drew. Again, it's about okay. sa- it's about safety there. Right. I can trust him. Three of the, the best three running backs are off the board. I think he's the next best one. Uh, number six, I have Aaron Rodgers. Can't go wrong with him. Number seven, I have Calvin Johnson. I think he's the best wide receiver. Number eight, I have Andre Johnson. Number nine, I have Jamal Charles. His injury was real early. He should be back right, and ready right. to go. And number 10, I have Larry Fitzgerald slash Matt Forte. I always look at that 10th spot as you're picking two players. Okay. Gonna, you know what I mean? Because you're going to have the next pick. So I figured if I was in this spot and those nine guys are off, I'm going to take Fitzgerald and Forte and go from there. Yeah, to be honest, I might be a little bit gun-shy on Andre Johnson because I did have him in a league this year, and he, he basically burned me. But uh, Right, because of his hamstring. But I think he'll be healthy next year. Schaub will be back. And he looked dynamite when he was healthy. Again, guys like Forte and McFadden I have on my list, and you'll have a much clearer picture of what they're going to look like come August. Yeah, this is really early. Kind of did it from for the fun of it, and it'll be interesting to see how this list changed as the offseason progresses. It seems like we say it every year, but the draft is interesting for one reason or another. But next year will be very interesting because of how many quarterbacks that – I mean, last year maybe Vic and Rodgers were the only guys that were first-rounders in most drafts. This year you might see someone like Cam Newton sneak into the first round. You might see – Breeze and Rodgers. I imagine you'll see Breeze and Rodgers there. I don't think either of them slip out of the first round. So you've got three guys right there, plus you have a guy 
like Vic, who probably won't be a first round. And pick. who knows what kind of scenario Manning's going to be in next year? Right. You know, he probably won't be a first round pick, but easily a second. Right. But if you go somewhere like San Francisco, I mean, not that I've heard that rumor, but he'd be a huge upgrade over Alex Smith, and with that defense, and I mean, he should always be playing ahead and. It'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting next year. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with one more interview, Jeff Merrick, and then we'll be back for pick four. All right. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of the University of Guelph. His career started as the host of Live Audio Wrestling and Leaf Lunch. In 2007, he began a four-year run on CBC's Hockey Night in Canada, where he hosted a serious satellite radio show, worked on television broadcasts, and helped debut iDesk. In 2011, he took his talents to Roger Sportsnet, where he still works today. Debuting last year, he began to co-host the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast with our good friend, the Puck Daddy. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the ultra-talented gentleman, Jeff Merrick. How are you doing today, Jeff? Uh, the $20 uh, is on its way for that <laughs> wonderful introduction. Now, do you want it as a single bill, two tens, or do you want, uh, you want four nickels on that one? Well, How do you want it? What color is a Canadian $20 bill? Is it green? green? Is it green? All right, I'll take the green, then. Yes. It, it, it's, it's the one that we share in common. Oh, Other than that, it goes, it goes purple and red. We've got brown <laughs> ones. We've got blue ones. We've got the full kaleidoscope for you. Well, I guess there's some, there's some, uh, some pluses and minuses to the Canadian money system, I would say. Yeah. Uh, we lose quarters. You lose $2 bills. I'd say that's the biggest thing. You know, when you're laying <laughs> out... I, yeah, I, I, miss, I miss the $2 bill, man. I, 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 miss, you know, I, I, I still have some kicking around the office somewhere. One of these days I'm going to get around to, to framing some old Canadian currency. But I miss, I miss the two. I mean, I like having the loony. The toonie is a little bit much for me, too much of the same thing. I, I think we should go back to the, the Canadian twos. So I think Gord Downey said it best uh, when he said, armed with will, determination, and grace too. be a great way to describe the Canadian World Junior Team who – they're always impossible to beat, and they just did not go down without a fight. And I'd imagine that you are disappointed today, but also very, very proud I'm of the way the team battled. Um, you know what? I'm not. Uh, first of all, that's my favorite Tragically Hip song. Grace Two is is haunting. I mean, it's it's the Tragically Hip writes songs in two moods: either bloom or brood, and that is the most brooding song the Tragically Hip have. And kudos to you for quoting a, a brilliant passage of it from from Downey. There, you know what? I I was I mean. I thought that it was going to be a, a close game. I know a lot of Canadian hockey fans yesterday thought it was going to be a tilted rink and Canada would blow out the Russians. I knew this one would be close. Um, it was a lopsided affair, as we all saw at the start. It was a nice little comeback story. But at the end of the game, because even before this one, I was saying, you know, the best outcome for this game is Russia wins. And the game was over, and it's not, you know, as if I'm, oh, you know, you take a knee as a Canadian hockey fan. That's unfortunate. But for the good of the game and for the good of the rivalry, that is Canada versus Russia, the right team won. Like, this was, this was a great moment for hockey. It wasn't a great moment for Canada, but it could be a great moment for Canadian hockey if, the, if Canada learns from this. The one thing that Canada didn't do in 1972 in the Summit Series was learn any lessons. 
And they could have. Now, they didn't learn any lessons because they won the Summit Series and they figured, okay, Canadian hockey is fine. Let's just keep on going the way we've been going. The Soviet Union lost that Summit Series. I don't know, call it a tournament, but that Summit Series. And they grew because of it. They became different teams. They became different players. They learned from the experience of playing against the Canadians. The Canadians took nothing of value away from the Soviets in 1972. So there was a great teaching, a great teachable moment here for Team Canada if they choose to accept it, i.e. three full periods of hockey. And it seemed as if the Team Canada juniors picked up in the first period where they left off in the third period of last year's World Junior Hockey Championship right. in Buffalo. Yep. Flat. And that it just you know, it didn't seem to you like a continuation like that. The first period last night just sort of seemed like it was the fourth period of that final game in Buffalo last year. That's what it felt like to me. You know, that's a great way to describe it. And I'm in Buffalo and was at the game last year. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that game a lot last year as it seemed like when Canada was mounting their comeback that th it was almost like they were going to flip the script on Russia. But i got to give the Russian coach a lot of credit for making the goaltender change. I mean, that's a move that I would have never had the balls to make. I don't know about you. Uh, it, you're right. That is gutsy. That is a, it's a feast or famine moment, right? It's one that can, that can define a coach or it's one that can ruin a coach. And listen, he was, <laughs> he was one Ryan Strom goalpost away from being ruined. Like that flurry at the end where Strom hit the post and Brett Connolly was there and, and could have put it away. I mean, that could have, that could have made that coaching decision look disastrous. But you're right. That was a, a bold move on a, and it was sort of indicative in a lot of ways of what we've seen the new Russian hockey team uh, be all about and the new Russian athlete. Uh, because once upon a time, the Russian athlete was, you know, played hard, head down, humble hockey player, eh, a little bit chippy and highly skilled. Now there's a swagger to the Russians, right? The last two World Junior Tournaments we've seen this specific, there is a cockiness. And it's best exemplified and typified by Alexander Ovechkin. We all understand that. But there is a new form of cocky Russian hockey player that's being exported to North America. We're starting to see it show up in the NHL right now. We saw it last night. And I'll tell you what, as much as Canadians love the pure hockey joy that was Peter Mrazek, uh, the Czech high, the Czech goaltender who stoned the U.S. Right. and pretty much eliminated them from, goal, from, uh, from medal contention, as much as they love that type of showmanship and over-the-top love of the game, Canadian hockey fans, Steve, hated it. When the tables were turned on them, they just couldn't. It was bitter. It was a pill that they swallowed that went down sideways. This one stung. But finally, you know, at the end of yesterday's game, Steve, I said to myself, this is great because Canada has its main rival back. I mean, I still think the future of international hockey is Canada versus the United States. But right now, the main rival in international hockey, Canada and Russia, it's back on again. So for that, it was a great moment for hockey. And, you know, you said a couple of things that stand out, you know, the, 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 the teachable moment. Now Canada is going to have a chance next year to go to Russia where the tournament's going to be and get revenge if they choose to do so. Yeah. And also you mentioned the cockiness of Russian hockey, and there's almost a lineage there, you know, from the, the 1980 Russian hockey team is obviously very cocky. Then I think of Pavel Bure, who is very cocky. Ovechkin has said that, you know, Bure was a big influence on him. You mentioned his cockiness, and now it will, it will continue on. But I want to ask you a little bit about the, the United States team that you mentioned. They, they leave without a medal, and they've been criticized quite a bit about being a little bit too loyal to people who come up through the United States development team program and not taking enough players who have 
experience in the Canadian Hockey League and, and also in the camp. I mean, the leading goal scorer was a kid named Kenny Agostino who plays D1 hockey at Yale, and he didn't make the tournament team for whatever reason. Do you think that the U.S. brought the right team and just ran into good goaltending against Finland and the Czech Republic? Or do you think that the U.S. needs to evaluate this a little bit more? Well, it, it depends on how you look at the tournament. I mean, if you look at the tournament as the be-all and end-all of you know the, the culmination of, of years of development, and that's the moment where you have to have success, then you can make that argument, and probably successfully so. But the way I look at the U-20s specifically, this is just another development tournament. Like These players have still not actualized as, as grown men playing hockey. This is, sure, the stakes are higher at the U-20s than they are at the U-18s or the Ivan Holenka or the U-17s, right? We all, we all understand that. But I just look at this as a, development, uh, as a development tournament more than anything else. And the way the U.S. is developing, uh, the, spending their money right now and recruiting players, I mean, that's probably the best way to develop their programs. Like the short term, yeah, just grab the best from, from wherever you can find them. Uh, grab more guys from, uh, from the Canadian Hockey League. That's fine and dandy if you want to treat that as the be-all and end-all. But if you want to look big picture and develop you know, significant programs all around the United States, I think the way the U.S. is doing it is probably the best way. Do you disagree? No, I don't. I, I'm a big fan of the development program, and I think they've done great things. And, you know, I think that... I'm I'm excited that we're as disappointed as we are because you know maybe 10 years ago success at this tournament wasn't even considered you know and with having some success and winning it 2 years ago it seems like we go into this tournament now with an expectation where it's either a medal or it wasn't good enough and as a fan of USA hockey I'm glad that we've gotten to that point you know and I, and USA hockey is listen relegation game or whatever. I mean, in a tournament where it's, you know, one and done, essentially, weird things happen. You know, bizarre things happen. You know, the, the model of greatness in a tournament like this is that consistency. But the U.S. is knocking on the door, man. Yeah. The U.S., sure, yeah, you hear it on Twitter, you hear that, well, USA hockey, relegation game, go beat up on the Latvians, ha, ha, ha. USA hockey's hanging in there, man. Like, USA hockey is producing some great athletes. And the more that this game grows, considering the facilities and considering, you know, uh, the brain trust involved in USA Hockey, the resources involved, and the population that could get turned on by hockey here. I mean, if, if, if I was just talking to Wyshynski about this on our podcast, he brought up a great point. If the United States decided that, you know what, screw baseball, screw football, screw basketball, we're going to start to send our premium athletes into hockey and dominate the world. Yeah, but it, it wouldn't, wouldn't wouldn't even be a contest because you have the population base, you have the resources, you have the. I mean, America has it all. America has all of it, but I mean, the athletes are, are fragmented. Some go into you know traditional Olympic sports. Some go into your traditional big three. I mean, it, it's a fragmented population. But I love the what USA Hockey is doing. It's come uh, leaps and bounds. The only thing I'm waiting for now, and we all are, is we're waiting for another either 1980 moment or 1996 moment that will galvanize the sport once again in the United States. It could have been Vancouver. Yeah, so I close. I mean, they're one, one shot away from that being, that, you know, Vancouver being that next galvanizing moment. I mean, you look at all those players that were influenced by the Miracle on Ice that ended up, you know, being that 1996 World, uh, World Cup team. I mean, you're just waiting now for that next wave of, of United States hockey player. And you maybe you just say to yourself, all it's going to take is one large event 
for that to happen. I don't know if the juniors is that big. It probably isn't. We're talking about, you know, the Olympics or, or something like that. Or, right. I mean, not even full championship. It's, it's got it's to be the Olympics. That has to be the moment for USA hockey. You know, and to Wyshynski's point, I think Sam Bradford is a great example of that. You know, I don't know if you know his background, but Sam Bradford's a kid who actually his family moved to Dallas so he could play AAA hockey as a peewee. And, you know, when he got to high school, instead of going – the hockey route, he started to focus on football, you know, became a world-class athlete, first-round pick in the NFL. If the USA development yeah. team is around back then, maybe he goes to Minnesota or Colorado or whatever, becomes a part of the development team and ends up being a great hockey player instead of a great football player. So I think Wyshynski's got a point there. Uh, we're just about out of time. That went really quick. Uh, the sportscaster are here with Jeff Merrick, uh, host of the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast. You can find him on Twitter, at Jeff Merrick. Um, I got to get this in. A, a, a listener, when I mentioned the interview, said that I have to ask you about throughs versus urinals. About what? Throughs versus urinals. Oh, Joe troughs. Troughs. Oh, oh you spelled it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Yeah. Okay, here, okay, here's the deal. Oh, that's so funny. This took on a life of its own, Steve. <laughs> okay, we're talking on the podcast one day about different arenas. And, and what they have, because, you know, I go back to going to hockey games, whether it's the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Toronto Toros or the WHA or the Toronto Marlboros of the then OHA, now OHL. I go to, I spent so much time at Maple Leaf Gardens, and one of my fondest memories was, it's going to sound weird, Steve, but it's true, is not whizzing in individual urinals, but there was at Maple Leaf Gardens, and a lot of the original six rings had this as well, just troughs that ran sort of all the way around, <laughs> that ran all the way around uh, the washroom. Uh, and so we did this, we did like 15 minutes and it took a life of it, took on a life of its own on Twitter on which do you prefer in an arena? Do you prefer the, the trough motif or is it essentially one big pan that everyone squirts in? Right. Or do you prefer the privacy, uh, of having your own urinal? I'm not sure where you stand on the deal, but I'm team trough and it's weird. I would have thought that more would be team urinal for the privacy element, perhaps the, the, the hygienic element of it as well. Dude, I find way more guys are just, no, man, I go to a sporting event, I'm going to dump about six or seven beers in me, and I am Team Trough. Yeah, Where I, do you stand, Steve? i got to go with the Troughs, too, because, you know, if not, I, I'm Team Sink, because I don't want to be waiting in line. You know, and I think the Troughs, <laughs> <laughs> the troughs just get everyone in and out a lot quicker. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah when the urinals are Dude. involved, you know, it's, there's people peeing in the sink. You know what I mean? Because it's just, just too slow. Get, I just want to get in, have a squirt, and get back out and watch my game. And the urine, the line of urinals are way too long. Just squeeze in, have a squirt at the trough, be done with it, wash your hands, and watch your game. All right, Steve, I've signed another one up for Team Trough. This is good news. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for squeezing us in today. Um, appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, we will uh, we'll do it again soon. Hopefully, we'll have a little bit more time. We'll get to talk a little bit more. But uh, thanks for getting us in, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Call, buzz back anytime, bud. Thanks, buddy. All right, we got to thank all our guests who made the season premiere of the Sportscasters great. I want to thank Tom Verducci from Sports Illustrated. I want to thank Lee Jenkins, also from Sports Illustrated, Michael Fabiano from the NFL Network, NFL.com, and Jeff Merrick from Rogers Sportsnet and the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast, which you can find every day on the Puck Daddy blog and other spots online. Um, 
Just to finish off the show today, I want to remind everyone, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. You can also find, find us at Twitter. The show is at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Like Sports. I'm occasionally at Diversity23. Our blog is the sportscasters.blogspot.net. You can email us anytime, sportscasters at gmail.com. And our website is sports-casters.com. Uh, you know, I want to thank everyone who listens to the show. And to show our appreciation, we do have a copy of James Andrew Miller's and Tom Shales's ESPN. Those guys have all the fun book. If you want to send us an email, sportscasters at gmail.com and list our four guests from this week. We'll take all of the correct entries and pick one out next week on the show to give away a copy of Those Guys Have All the Fun on paperback. Um, last order of business today is pick four. We kept our picks from the season finale of the show and also gave bonus points for our over-unders from the NFL at the beginning of the year. Don and I both went 2-2 two and two on our over-unders. I won with Lions over 7.5 and, and Jaguars under 6.5. I lost with Bills under 5.5 and, and Bengals over 5.5 or under 5.5. The Bills won I lost only by half a game. Uh, Don won with Jaguars under 6.5. That was a good one, huh? That was a, yeah. that was a, they needed three more wins to get that one. Yep. And um, Washington under 6.5. He lost with Kansas City. That's without Peyton Manning, too. Yep, lost with Kansas City over 7.5 and, and Bengals under 5.5. So we each get two bonus points for that. Start the season 2-0 and each. As for our last set of picks... I went two and two, winning 49ers minus three over the Steelers. That game was twenty to three. This is back in week fourteen or fifteen in the NFL season. Saints minus seven over the Vikings. Won that forty-two to twenty. Lost the Chargers over the Ravens and way lost uh, Jets over the Eagles. I had the Jets minus three. They lost that game forty-five to nineteen. I can't believe the collapse of the Jets. We didn't get to it. They were terrible. Unbelievable. Uh, Don went one and three. <laughs> It's New Year. Patriots uh, minus seven over the Broncos. Won that one pretty easily. And he lost the Steelers over the 49ers, Ravens over the Chargers, and the Seahawks didn't make the playoffs. So Don goes into the year three and three. I go into the year four and two, and here we go. All right, let's start off pick four this year with the game of the game of the week. Sorry, game of the year. Uh, The game of the week is Alabama at LSU, reverse LSU. Look, I mean, they already played this game once. It's it's a pick them in the line. Uh, it'd be easy to go either way with this game. I'm going to take LSU. They won it the first time. They're slightly more the home team, I suppose. Not that Alabama's yeah. all that far. No, but it's in New Orleans. But it's, it's, in in New- it's in Louisiana. So, I mean, I expect there to be slightly more LSU fans there. So, give me LSU to do it again. Yeah, I'm going to take LSU as well. This game is on Monday. Uh, at 8.30 on ESPN. Look, at I've picked LSU many times yeah, this year. Yep. You know, I kept going to that well, and they never cost me. Like you said, this game was played before in Alabama. LSU won the game on the road by a field goal. They get to basically go home, play the game again. Anything can happen. Neither of these teams have played for six weeks. I think that's why the game's a pick, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with LSU. All right, my worldwide leader pick this game is the Lions at the Saints game, which... I dropped the ball and didn't write down the game times on these. This game is Saturday at 8, 8 o'clock on NBC. Saturday at 8 o'clock on NBC. Uh, I read a stat on ESPN. They have a little uh, breakdown of the teams in the in the game preview section. 
and it says the Saints are only seven and nine all year against the spread and four and four against the spread at home. Now where they were eight and zero. I looked that up. That has to be wrong. They were eight and zero at home. How did they? Unless they were some monster, monster favorites. The closest home game they played all year was a seven-point game against Houston, I believe. Okay, yeah. So that stat has to be wrong. Um, I didn't. I didn't have all the lines in front of me to look that up. But anyway, they're an eleven-point favorite this week, and. Like I said, the closest margin of victory was seven points, I think, over Houston. That said, I don't know why I'm taking the Lions. I guess it's just the type of thing where 11 feels like a lot of points for a playoff game. The Lions can score a ton of points, too. The Saints' defense isn't exactly great. Um, The Lions have averaged 35 points a game their last four games. I don't expect them to win this game, but I guess I expect them to keep it tighter than 11. You know that I have this game for my worldwide leader as well. I'm going to take the Saints. Saints, like LSU, is a team I've been riding. It's no secret I'm a Saints fan. Maybe that's new to you if you're new to the show this season. But I just think, like the LSU-Alabama game, this game's been played already. And it was played a right. few weeks ago in New Orleans. Um, they would have Sunday covered night the football, then. And they would have covered it. So I'm gonna stick with the Saints minus eleven. Yeah, again, like I said, every everything tells me to go against. I don't it. hate just, your pick. It though. just feels like a big line for a playoff game. I'm nervous about it. I'll be honest, because they they could outscore us. Could you happen. Ne- you never know. I mean, yeah. uh, my host choice this week is the Steelers at the Broncos. That game is the Sunday game at four thirty. Uh, the Steelers are a nine point favorite on the road, which again I guess goes against what I just said on the other one. That's a huge line for a playoff game. That said, the Broncos put up three points in a game that could have cost them their their season against Kansas City. The Kansas City's defense isn't exactly Pittsburgh's. I think Pittsburgh easily covers nine points. Yeah, that that's yeah. All right, my host choice is Houston minus three over Cincinnati. That's the four thirty game on NBC. Look at, I don't like rookie quarterbacks in the playoffs. They're both rookie quarterbacks. I don't like road teams on the playoffs. I don't like barely qualifying for the playoffs, backing in <laughs> right. kind of teams like the Bengals. You know, the Bengals actually clinched their spot in the playoffs because the Raiders lost. Right. You know what I mean? Like, they're just not convincing. I think that they're ahead of schedule, but they're a year away. I think Houston isn't going to get much farther than this round, but I think they have enough to beat Cincinnati at home in their first ever playoff game by three. Yeah, that said about backing in, Houston has lost three of their last three games. They also have tried very hard. So, They've been locked right, into it does that seem spot like, for a while. Right. They didn't need the games for any reason. In the earlier meeting, Houston beat Cincinnati with 20-19. to 19, So since Cincinnati would have covered. That said, this isn't one of my picks, but I did. if I would have picked it, I would have taken Houston also. Um, lastly, my bold prediction this week, the Giants are a three-point favorite over the Falcons at home. This game is also the the 1 o'clock Sunday game. If you look at the schedules, the Falcons have not beat a solid team all year. Uh, they have really just one win against a quality opponent who I don't have written down. Um, and the Giants, is it Baltimore? No, I don't think so. San Francisco? Uh, they beat somebody. Yeah, they had one good win. Um, but And really, that's it. The rest of their division hasn't been great other than the Saints, who they lost to both times. Uh, 
And the Giants are only a three-point favorite. Again, they've been up and down. But I, I just – the Giants are a strange team because I feel like they could really go in and beat anybody. Like, they could upset anybody. And So give me the Giants. The The line right now is three. I'm going to take them by nine. I think, I think they easily win that game. I think the Giants are the team this year that kind of nobody wants to play. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's uh, – because They're because scary. of Eli too, and, and the way they can rush the quarterback with only right. four guys, they have a they have a defense and they have a quarterback. The Bengals have the defense, but I mean Andy Dalton isn't exactly he's been good, but he's not going to exactly lay fear into anybody. Uh, as for who the Falcons beat that were any good, I'm looking at their schedule now, and you could make a case that they didn't beat anyone good. Uh, they lost to Chicago. They beat the Eagles by. four. By four. Yeah, I wasn't considering that game. Did they beat Houston, maybe? Um. So this is their schedule. They they lost to the Bears in week one, beat the Eagles, lost to the Bucks, uh, beat the Seahawks. Again, a bad by, Bucks team. By two. Um, the Bucks did start four and two, so right. they were decent then. Um, they lost to the Patriot or Packers by eleven. Uh, they beat the Panthers. Oh, Detroit is the good team. Okay, twenty three to sixteen, they beat Detroit. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of just a team that hasn't done it yet, and I don't. This isn't the team to do it against in the Giants. All right, I'm going to go with the prop for my bold prediction. I'm going to say that Marquise Colston, Darren Sproles, and Jimmy Graham are going to get over 350 yards from scrimmage. So I'm not going to take any return yardage or anything like that. Okay, uh, just uh, receiving and rushing yards and. I think there's going to be a lot of offense, and it seems like these three guys have established themselves as the go-to guys on the Saints' offense. It's like if you try to stop Graham, it's going to open up Colston. If you try to drop a lot of people deep and play a zone, Breeze is going to dump the ball all day off to Sproles, who's going to use his speed. So I'm not sure how the Lions are going to try to approach the Saints. They gave up a billion yards to Matt Flynn and a bunch of backups <laughs> against the Packers. Yeah. Um, I have to be confident as a Saints fan, really. It'd be a bad loss, you know, not to take anything away from Detroit, who I think is, again, maybe ahead of schedule a little bit. But I think the Saints have to be able to win this game at home. You know, the, I would agree. Like you said, the Lions are a team that can put up points, and that's the only thing you have to be worried about is if it's going to – because there's no way that the Lions, if the Lions slow down. If the New Lions Orleans. are going to win, uh, uh, and Sue is going to be a monster. And he's going to knock Drew Brees down, and he's going to force Drew Brees into mistakes. And that's the only way I see them having any chance to win. Uh, but I think the Saints have a great offensive line. Yeah. And, 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 and you know who's like the sixth member of the offensive line? Brees. You know, because Brees keeps himself safe by the way he plays quarterback. Right. It's tough to touch him. You know, so the Lions have a real challenge in front of them. And I hate to be cocky, and I hate to... I'm just not that kind of fan. Anyone who knows me knows that I'll call my team out if they deserve it. But they've won eight games in a row. And yep. I think they're the best team in the league right now. And I like the way the playoffs is set up for them. You know, they get to if they win this game, they get to go to San Francisco. Uh, if the Giants win, the Giants will have their first chance at Green Bay. You know, and then yeah, if, yeah, they get to, if they get to Green Bay, they have nothing to lose. Right. And when they were... Played them in week one. They had the ball on the one-yard line on an untimed dial with a chance to tie it. Yep. So, I don't know. I like our chances. But we should stop. It's been a great, long first podcast. Again, thanks to our guests. Looks like next week we're going to have Chris Ballard from SI and SI.com and Michael Holly for sure. Maybe we're going to have Kurt Menefee. We'll work on that. But we will be back next week. Don, cue the hip.
All right.